0: I've built seven startups that went zero to a million in their first 12 months. I've built three companies that have gone over 10 million in valuation. Today, we've got a team of over 100 people on our team. We do $12
1: million a year in revenue. I'm sort of thinking, is he even human? If you were now stripped of all of your money, what steps would you take to become a millionaire again? The first four things you need when you're going to start a business is you need... What's the next step? Now, this is really important. Don't build the idea unless you've got leads. How actionably would you say for someone to actually go about doing that?
0: It's actually one of the ways we scaled all the different companies. I've always been a massive fan of... That is essentially the first place where business becomes great. So then I'm going to move across to sales. In order for someone to buy from you, they have to logically want to buy the thing, emotionally want to buy the thing. And let's role play now. So I guess I'm
2: a bit afraid of committing to paying a price every single week. Can I have your permission to
0: push back on that
3: idea with something that is a bit cheeky and a bit playful?
2: Yeah, I'm in a cheeky mood. So
3: go on. (laughs) (laughs) There will be people in the comments that don't have any money. So
0: I would encourage them to go something like... What are? those next few big industries those big opportunities
1: i've always been a massive fan of um... but then how do you take that from the six figures to the seven figure mark i like it so i've got to say you're looking sharp daniel i love your drip Thank you, mate. I appreciate that. I was hoping that you was going to say I was looking I jacked, felt, but... I felt a bit
0: awkward. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking jacked. Is it Grant Cardone? Should, should, <laughs> did you see that? <laughs> yeah,
3: that really got to he him. He really there. got in there. You have been really... hitting
0: the gym, haven't you? Quite a lot. For the last three weeks since you did that episode, you've massively improved.
1: Yeah, it's been three weeks of consistency. New year, new me, new goals, new vision, the lot. You should have seen him
2: in the in the hotel last night. I went to his room. He's there in the mirror. Tom, do you reckon I'm looking a bit... Do you reckon I'm I'm like, yeah, mate, yeah, Obviously, I'm taking the (laughs) piss. No, just own it, man. He could barely fit
1: through the door. He had to kind of go on his side and then like shimmy through. I was was putting my jacket on. I was like, as soon as I put this jumper
3: on, I was like, I'm going to be looking Jack. You guys ready to head over there? (laughs) Speaking about trips away, I've actually got a bones pick with you. You've stolen one of our ski buddies for the next ski trip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were meant to have Jack Wicks coming with us. And now he's going with you instead.
0: Oh, I run this thing called Ski Person of Influence where I take like 40, 40, 50 people away to the snow. I I don't even know who's on it this year, but.
3: What kind of thing do you do with them (laughs) apart from the skiing? It's super
0: simple. We ski all day. Uh, Before dinner, we do a one hour panel. Um, So we bring interesting people. A lot of people on the trip have sold their company for like 20 million plus. They've been through a few journeys and then they end up um, doing a panel. So we'll have a theme to the panel and then we just have dinner. Um, And I trust that everyone just gets along uh, has the chats that they need to have on the ski lift. There's no big agenda. We just ski and eat and have a panel
1: each day. You hear that, Jack. So you've ditched us for someone who doesn't even know that you're going. So I hope, <laughs> I hope you're happy with your decision. He's like, yeah, who's that? I'll, I'll, by the end of the trip, I'll know. Yeah,
2: yeah. Anyway, let's get into yeah. this podcast um, right. because- This is the second time you've been on, friend of the show now. Thanks for having me back. Uh, Thanks for coming. And we're in this very Dragon's Den-esque studio right now. I'm out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me ask you a question. If you could sell yourself
0: to the viewers, as if the viewers were dragons, if you like, how would you pitch yourself? So um, I've been an entrepreneur for half my life, 21 years. I'm 42 now. Um, I've built seven startups that went zero to a million in their first 12 months. I've built three companies that have gone over 10 million in valuation. Uh, I've written six books on entrepreneurship um, in a in a series, um, and four of those have become international best selling books. Um, I've also done that while also getting married, having three kids, um, having a pretty stable and fun family life. Um, uh, I've traveled a lot, and uh, yeah, I do it in a way that's kind of fun and enjoyable. And we've got today we've got a team of over a hundred people on our on our team. We do uh, close to twelve million dollars a year in in revenue. Um, it's all kind of cool and relaxed and enjoyable. Um, so if, if people are interested in those journeys, then then I'm your guy.
3: What do you think sets you apart from all those young gurus that are popping up now giving advice to the next generation?
0: Well, there are some people who, I love the culture of people sharing their journey. I love the culture of people doing that. There there are some people who have had fast money, right? And fast money, you've gotta be very um, skeptical of someone who's made money fast. Uh, I was saying to you before, I, I know someone who was buying drugs on Silk Road um, back years ago and just had 90 bitcoins that they were using back when bitcoins were like five bucks each. And they were intending to use that to buy drugs online. And now that person's a millionaire. Um, And and this is not someone who should be a millionaire. This is someone who looks like a millionaire. They, they, They show up on social with the fast cars and they're always on holiday and all this sort of stuff this is not someone to learn anything from, you know, the the whole strategy is basically be lucky. Um, And, uh, you know, ideally you want someone who's been punched in the face over and over and over again, and who figures out how to duck and weave and dodge and get back up. Um, Do you feel like you've been punched in the face over and over again? Because
2: from what I can see of you, you are very, as you said, relaxed. It's all very easy. But then you mention all those things that you do and that you have done. And I'm sort of thinking, is he even human? Because what what normal human could do all that, achieve all that, but still have this very calm,
0: relaxed attitude? Have been punched a fair bit. Um, you know, business isn't easy. Uh, you know, it's it's very difficult. Um, you know, you're dealing with a lot of people. You're dealing with people's expectations. You're dealing with finance. Um, you're dealing with hyper scenarios. Plus also you're trying to create emotions in others and, and create a, a brand and a culture that people want to be part of. Um, so it requires a, a, a rounded skill set. And not everyone's suited for that.
2: Is there anything or any specific qualities or things that you think a lot of people in business struggle
0: with or don't have? I think I think every business owner has something that they're struggling with. Um, I think the the ability to just brace, uh, embrace the struggle, and say this is just part of the journey. I'm not digging ditches. I'm not you know I'm not stuck uh, out in the cold digging up a road. Um, there. I also I say stuff to myself like. Um, There are people my age who run countries or who are in charge of militaries. I'm not doing any of that stuff. I've got it easy. Keep going. My shoulders are broad. Give me more. Um, So I I
3: reframe it pretty quickly. Do you think we'll see more black swan events like crypto happen in the future? And Is there a way to position yourself for that luck? I think
0: there's definitely going to be a lot of those sorts of things, um, especially with like AI startups and um, maybe not crypto, but but there'll be all, as long as I've been around, there's always been something that's pumping. When I first started my career, the actual stock market, it was uh, dot com. Um, anything that had a dot com attached to it was going to be, you know, the next thing. And people were selling companies that had no revenue for 100 million. Um, so all of this stuff was going on in those early days. Uh, I've always seen something pumping in that way. Um, No, I don't think that there's a really good way to chase, you know, chase that stuff. I don't think it's a happy life chasing that stuff. It's very, it's not a good idea to compare yourself to someone who got onto one of those. They stepped on a money landmine and blew up and basically, congratulations, you're an idiot who got lucky. But... Um, you don't necessarily want to follow those people because it's very hard to replicate it and do it again. Show me someone who can do that over and over and over again. I think there are good trends to follow. There are solid trends to follow. Um, but also, here's the other thing. Getting rich slow is actually quite it, – it actually has a lot more benefits than people realize. You get used to the money. Um, you, having money hit you fast is actually not necessarily an enjoyable experience. Um, what happens when money hits the bank account fast, and I I, I have built wealth slowly, or well, I'm 42 and I've, I've done well, but I mean, so faster than most, but also it hasn't been like zero to 10 million boom. Um, what happens when money hits people's accounts really fast is that they get all sorts of people approaching them for money. So family members come out of the woodwork, they end up damaging their relationships because of the way that they handle that. They buy stuff that um, is, is poorly chosen, um, the emotions around money come up, um, all sorts of stuff goes on and in many cases people are not well equipped to deal with a massive influx of money if it happens that fast.
3: Every time I speak with Daniel, it's clear that he believes you need to adapt to technology or get left behind. On this note, some of the biggest technological advances are actually happening in the financial space. I mean, FinTech is honestly super exciting, especially for everyday investors. That's why I'm excited to share with you how our sponsors at Masterworks are changing the game. They've managed to use FinTech technology to enable everyday investors to fractionally invest in a previously exclusive asset class. Fine art. What? You think billionaires are buying million dollar paintings just as conversation starters? These are assets that have been appreciated in value for decades. This is all because they have near zero correlation to traditional equities. Meaning when the stock or real estate market is looking unstable because of something you can't control, your art investment is less likely to be affected. Masterworks has over 300 offerings from legends like Picasso, Banksy, and more but you don't need graduate level art history knowledge to take advantage. While past results are no guarantee of future returns, each of their sales has delivered a profit so far, which is why over 900,000 users have signed up as of the start of this year. Shares have sometimes even sold out within minutes. But our subscribers can skip the waitlist and get started today by clicking the link in the description. Anyway, back to the show.
2: How has your mindset changed from having little or presumably no money at the start to now having more than anyone could really dream of? Is there a shift in how you think about money?
0: Yeah. Um, I was always pretty optimistic at the early days that I was going to have money. I remember being totally broke and going and walking through affluent neighborhoods and just looking at those big houses and saying, I'm going to have a house like that one day and, um, and you know, looking at all of those trappings and reading the books and all that. I was always very positive and optimistic in the early days. I was sleeping on a, on a mattress on the floor In there were five of us living in a three-bedroom place and I was in the garage you know, I was Pizza Hut delivery driver by night and McDonald's and um, working in a bar and knocking on doors, setting appointments. Like, So I was, I was eating shit, but I was also very, very positive and optimistic that it was going to go somewhere. Um, so I was, I was a pretty positive person. Money just takes away a lot of problems. You just solve a lot of problems if you've got money, you know. So you can hire people to do anything. Um, you don't have to clean your house because you have cleaners and you don't have to pick up kids from school if you don't want it because you can just get a nanny to do it. And um, if one of the kids is struggling with a topic, you can bring in a tutor. If you make a mistake, you have a threshold of being able to make several mistakes in a row and it doesn't impact you materially. If you're broke and you make basic mistakes, even if the mistakes are not your fault, you're know you you're back in reptile mode. So I remember going full reptile over a speeding t- uh, over a parking ticket Um, So I was like, I don't know, maybe I was 18, 19 years old. I'd I'd gone out to a business seminar um, to to see a business talk and like I was totally on a high and then there was a parking ticket and I was like devastated because it was $40 and I just did not have $40 and it was like this was going to destroy my entire finances. I was going to literally have to eat Special K and pasta for, uh, you know, weeks to be able to afford the $40. I just didn't have any buffer for a mistake to happen Um, whereas – you know, now bad stuff can happen and I can just absorb it and, also special k is actually quite expensive these days so these days it was
3: not just like a luxury option, option isn't not it?
1: from yeah. costco oh really go to costco you get the big boxes of special <laughs> you k. you just mentioned that money solves a lot of problems which i agree it does but i feel like that's why the majority of people want to make money fast, to, to solve their problems quickly and i would say that that's also the same as gambling you know why people gamble mm. a lot of money because they want that instant hit so what would you say to someone who is at home that maybe does gamble or they are always looking for that next big get rich quick scheme what would you say to them to try and you know reframe their mind to to make money slow and doing it the right way like you have
0: the way i think about mindset is that you have three settings and um, there's reptile there's autopilot and there is visionary so reptile is the dumbest part of your brain and it's fight flight freeze freak out have tantrums throw toys out the pram and it's also really stupid so that part of the brain loves anything if i say it's passive income or it's a big win or you're going to get rich quick um, or look at this ferrari or look at this lambo uh, look at this guy who's on a yacht Right? So that part of the brain is just like, oh, really? Oh, okay. okay. It's
3: great for getting the views on YouTube. Like it's we use the passive income thing all the time, but then we switch their mindset in the videos. Yes. So you need to get them in somehow. Yeah, you've got to hook that reptile. Mm. The reptile loves all of that stuff
0: and it loves food and it loves gambling and it loves sex and all that sort of stuff. The autopilot is you just doing your habits. It's basically a part of your brain that just figures out what works and it just repeats what what didn't kill you, basically. It's not what works. It's it figures out what didn't kill you last week and does the same thing. So if I drive this way, I you know I can just drive an autopilot. Yeah, you know, some people have really great habits. They go to the gym four times a week because that's their habit. They just feel weird if they don't do it. I've been doing a that. Yeah, I don't know. If like, you like, I can like tell. Like be, yeah. are, are you okay on that couch? Like, <laughs> I, I,
1: I'm managing for now. <laughs> we but can get another one, maybe. It's we getting can it get up out of hand. That's why we're rebuilding the studio yeah. now because them little <laughs> chairs that we had, I, I didn't. Not even, gonna fit. They don't work for me no more.
0: Uh, yeah. So, so autopilot. You want to you want to kind of assess. Do I have good habits or bad habits? Um, if I were to extrapolate these habits over 10 years, does this lead somewhere inspiring uh, or is this probably something that is going to drain me?
2: I have noticed that it seems that the majority of people are in that sort of auto cycle, but it's not necessarily always bad. Like they're not always, it's not always leading to something bad, but it's also not even necessarily leading to anything at all. And it's just like, yeah, I'm just living my life. And you kind
0: of ask them why, or what, what, mm. what's your ambition or what do you actually want to do? And they go, What do you mean? Don't know. Yeah, and that's that top part of the brain. So the top part of the brain, I call the visionary, and the visionary is the part that can zoom out, and it's all the complex emotions: love, compassion, strategy, um, empathy. Um, It's the ability to think through time and space. So it's like thinking, thinking ahead. So for example, thinking through time is like where would I be at age forty, age fifty, age sixty if I can? You know, so you're thinking on bigger time scales. Most millionaires think in decades, Um, and then you say, okay the thinking through space is zoom out to the level of the atmosphere look down on earth and say what's the market opportunity if i zoom out i know that sounds really weird but i I do a lot of that so i might look like i might if i'm starting a business i might actually visualize the planet from out in space and think about well i wonder how many cities around the world have that same market opportunity is this the best city in the world where should i focus my attentions so i'm like zooming out if i'm feeling super stressed Right, Like I'm like, oh, this feels like it's a really big stress. I'll do a little visualization of like zooming up above London, up past the clouds, out into space, see the earth, zoom out and say across time and distance, does this really matter? And it's like I want what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get back to the visionary because the visionary has got all the answers. It's 15 points of IQ smarter than the rest of the brain. So your brain, your IQ is not fixed. Your IQ as a reptile is 15 points lower than normal. Your IQ on autopilot is your sort of resting IQ and your visionary has 15 extra points of IQ where you can think really intelligent strategy if you're in that mode, but you've got to get yourself into that mode. So what most people are doing is they're living their life in reptile autopilot and you've got to get yourself into visionary mode. You've got to be thinking, you know, three steps ahead. And You've got to be thinking of empathy, putting yourself in your customer's shoes. What does it feel like to be in their world? Um, you know How do we, how do we see, see the world with a bit more of a longer time horizon and see the world as 8 billion people rather than the few people that are around? What would
3: you say to someone that gets stuck in that visionary mode? Because I know these boys make fun of me because I'm always making these plans for 10 years' time. And I find that really exciting, but then I find it hard to do the day-to-day tasks mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about where is this going? What's the big vision?
0: So um, success tends to be a team sport. And we all have different strengths and some people genuinely have a strength, which is a visionary strength where they, their strength is thinking in long timescales and their strength is seeing trends and um, spotting different things. Other people have a strength, which is tasks, getting stuff done. Um, and they can actually be in their visionary mode by figuring out the best way to get stuff done, how to automate it, um, how yeah, to make sure. That's sh- what Tom does really well. Yeah, yeah. so that's a practicality uh, strength. So... Um, there's actually four key strengths that you can have as a, as a person. So one is if you take the four suits in a deck of cards, so clubs represents head in the clouds. It was originally clouds. So putting your head in the clouds is basically having vision. Um, hearts represents connecting with people. Spades rec- represents doing the work, getting things done. And diamonds rec- uh, represents systemizing um, and refining and cutting it back to the most valuable bits. Um, so a systemization or refinement process. So the four key values are represented in those deck of cards and you, each, each person actually has one core strength
3: uh, that that you can leverage I think we need someone with a spade because we've got obviously the connection I say you're the heart um, you're the day-to-day tasks and helping out with well, the tasks of the spades oh, okay so so what's the other one the diamonds the diamonds Diamond,
0: so. diamonds is essentially monetization it's um, oh, okay I guess that's what you do as well it's data it's refinement it's it's systemization it's basically mm, that's me then yeah I think w- between us we, we are quite good at that you almost you're kind of like top of that funnel and he'll
2: have all these grand ideas and um, things for the future and stuff, and I, and it's kind of my job to then take them and go, okay, but how can it actually be done? Can mm-hmm. it be done? Mm-hmm. What are the problems with this? Which usually he obviously doesn't want to hear because he, oh, it'll get it done. No, but like this could go wrong. This could go wrong.
0: This could go wrong. Like you're being negative. No, it's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. we're gonna make it happen. But I guess you do need that. You need it. You need you that need, seesaw, yeah. right? So the 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 bigger perspective that you guys will get is the chemistry is better than the individual strength. So um. Having like a balanced team. If you think about a classical executive team, you've got a CEO who's meant to be the visionary. You've got a CFO who's diamond energy refinement cash flow. You've got the CMO who's connecting with the marketplace hearts energy. You've got the COO who's getting work done and actually implementation. And it's the balance of that executive team that creates a great company. Um, you can't just have a visionary person who doesn't have anything around getting getting done around them. Um,
1: you Or know, three con- visionary people, for example, yeah. we would just all be in the clouds all the time. Exactly,
0: all three task oriented people. We're all writing people. our
1: 10 year plans on the <laughs> flight next to each other. Yeah, or, th-
0: or, or if you have three people who are CFOs and they're just constantly analyzing a spreadsheet, but no big picture going on, right? So you need the balanced team. You've got, and the team, it's the team dynamic that makes this whole
3: thing work. How important do you think mindset content is? Because like we've uh, interviewed Grant Cardone, Luke Balmar recently, and lots of their content is, is directed at everyone to fix their mindset and to think a little bit differently. One of the things Grant said is he wanted a helicopter, so he wrote it down for like 20 years, did he say something like that? And it, he he managed, was writing it down. Yeah, he to, wrote it down every yeah. day for a certain amount of years, and that's why he got the helicopter. Mm. It was magic. And obviously, that's, there's a bigger appeal to that and the law of attraction, but mm. how important is it for people to consume that type of content?
0: So I personally, I have a very simple view of mindset and it's, are you being a reptile, an autopilot or a visionary? Um, and when I say visionary, right, your visionary is different to his visionary. Your visionary is looking at the process and saying, how do we do it better? What I'm, what I'm interested in is, do any of these activities give me 15 points of extra IQ? Hmm. So if writing down having a helicopter makes me feel visionary and gets me out of reptile and autopilot, then it's doing its job great. Um, I'm, I'm thinking bigger and I'm actually, I'm in the part of my emotions and I'm in the part of my brain that is smarter, more connected, more empathetic, more strategic. Mm -hmm. So if we're doing things that trigger that visionary mindset, and this is all science-based as well. So if writing down having a helicopter helps you do that and you makes you feel like, let's say you're living in a world that is very financially stressful and that constantly triggers the reptile. And you've got some daily habits that get you to disassociate with that current reality. And, Like, you know, me, I'm saying that for me, I visualize being up out in space and looking at the planet from more distance. That's a stupid thing to do, but it's a way of triggering the visionary. Um, So if Grant's strategy for for triggering the visionary is to just dream about what would I want if money was no object, um, that is actually an activity that would trigger the visionary. Also, gratitude journaling will do the same thing. If you stop thinking about how shit life is and you start thinking about what you're grateful for, that will also trigger the same sort of thing and put you in the visionary mind. What you're trying to do is unlock... You've got this full potential that sits at the top of the brain. And if you get the, the problem with the brain is that we built it in, or it was built in such a way that the lower parts shut down the higher parts. If a, if a bear comes in here, we don't want to empathize with the bear and have a strategy for the bear and have a 10-year vision for the bear. Could be a nice bear. We want to punch the bear in the <laughs> nose and run, right? So the goal- We'll make like I do
3: that, we'll right. run. Yeah, exactly. Reptile, He'll be the
1: first out. <laughs> He'll be the first out, trust not, me. Not no, now. that was, <laughs> not Tom, now. that was last year. He's got right? a, okay. It's January, it's new year, new me. I he's said got that a, earlier. He's got bear arms. Um, <laughs> right. So he's going to,
0: he, so fight, flight, freeze is the appropriate response. So it shuts down all the other parts of the brain and goes with that. The other thing too is autopilot is a great thing. If you live in a a tribal situation, you walk down a path and there's bananas at the end of the path, it makes sense to keep walking down that path every single day, get the bananas and bring them back and not think about it, just go do that thing Um, because that's what made you survive last week. So why don't you survive again next week? So historically, there wasn't a great reason to be thinking about 10 years out. There wasn't a great reason to be thinking about You know, grand plans, because for most of human history, we didn't have any ability to execute grand plans. So we have to relearn how to open up that part of our brain. But here's the good news everyone's got it. Every single person has moments where they feel like anything's possible. Um, And and on the flip side, I can take multi, multi millionaires, and if I trigger their reptile, they feel like their world is crashing down around them. They feel like they're going to lose it all. They feel like they don't have enough. Um, They feel like they have to cut off these relationships because these people want stuff from me and I got to get rid of them out of my life. So they can go reptile mode as well. So we all have all three settings. So the step one, like my whole mindset philosophy is recognize are you being reptile autopilot or visionary, right? If you recognize that you're anything other than visionary, take a breath, go for a walk, right? Journal, write down that you want a helicopter and get back in the game, right? Because yeah. we're working with our brains. We've got to have the right brain on.
3: In the beginning, do you have to be a reptile sometimes though to get the job done? The reptile doesn't is it's not useful
0: for anything. Not useful. It's not useful. It's useful if a bear comes in. Okay. But uh, it, you you know when you're in reptile mode. Mm. Have you ever done anything amazing from reptile mode?
3: I suppose just cranking out TikToks day in day out like that. Maybe, auto maybe that was autopilot. Auto part, Re- yeah.
2: Reptile mode is is, is like clenched jaw when when people in the team for example will say something negative like oh i can't i don't want to get up at 5am this morning or whatever and now we start checking each other and go well no lots of people would be very grateful (laughs) to be doing a podcast today or getting up at this time or whatever or like when we're we're on a long flight someone likes to complain a little bit and we'll we'll check you and i think that is um yeah we seem to manage that quite well i think Yeah.
0: yeah like you'll go reptile if you haven't eaten if you haven't slept um, you know, if you, if you're physically uncomfortable, if you're in pain, if someone threatens your status, like if you get a really nasty comment in the, in the, in the comment section, fuck that guy, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'll find him and I'll fucking kill him. <laughs> <laughs>
2: when you first started, uh, getting a little bit of a taste of success, was there any part of you that thought, am I just overly lucky? Is this a fluke? Is, is Am I going to lose it all tomorrow? Or were you always secure that I can do it again and I can do it again? Bit of both. Um, because I guess now you've proven
0: it. You've proven to yourself that it can yeah, be done. I, I, could, I could start from scratch. I do, I do start stuff all the time and um, I'm not worried about that. I've got the skill set now. Uh, look, I built slowly in the sense that I did two years with a mentor and I ran his business and I ran his sales and marketing and I did sales and I did marketing and I launched a regional side of his business at 19 and 21 years old. Crazy that he let me do that, but I I got the chance to do that. 21 to 23, I ran my own multi-million dollar business. Then we hit a a good contract. We signed up a great contract and everything clicked into gear. We went from millions to a million a month um, within 18 months. So it was a very fast boom. And then I negotiated an exit for 14 million. Um, So I was like ready to sell and we were getting ready. We had a massive breakdown in negotiations. Everything came massively unraveling. And I dropped back down to 2 million uh, of annual revenue. And I had to re- rebuild from there. And I chose to come to the UK and all that sort of stuff. So I'd been through a few roller coasters, but it hadn't been like boom, boom. Like, so it was sort of built and then bang. And then, and then when I launched in the UK, I went from zero to 4 million in our first year, 4 million pounds. Um, so I, I went from complete standing start, suitcase, credit card. I launched everything on a credit card um, and did 4 million pounds in the first year worth of sales. So I, at that point, I'm like, I can do this. And then soon after that, the global financial crisis happened and the whole thing came crumbling down again. I went to 400 grand. I lost 90% of revenue the following year. Um, and then I rebuilt again and we went, and went back into a multi-million pound business
1: again. So by that point, I'm like, okay, I think I, can, I, think I know how to do this. And
2: you trust yourself at that
1: point because, yeah, yeah. if you were now stripped of all of your money, but you could keep your knowledge, what steps would you take to become a millionaire again?
0: Let me put some ground rules on this.
1: You you can make the rules on the show. I got to make
0: some rules. I got to make some rules. Here's some ground rules. Um when we do these type of activities there's always someone in the comment who's like, "Oh, but what about someone who doesn't have shoes?" What you said walk over to there. What if someone can't walk? Uh you know, what if someone can't afford a phone? What if someone doesn't have a credit card? It's like, "Come on, if we're playing the what if game, so we have to agree somewhere on the spectrum, right? If I'm like if I start from scratch, that's going to be very different to any of your listeners starting from scratch. Do I have my reputation or not have my reputation? Do I, how much of my knowledge do I have? Can I just walk in and, and say I've built multiple multi-million pound businesses before or not, right? Can I leverage that stuff? So that would be a 10 out of 10 on that mm-hmm. spectrum. One out of 10, I don't have shoes, I don't have a phone, I don't have a credit card. It's very hard to play this game. If we sort of agree that I'm talking about someone who's a five on that spectrum, and then we keep dropping back to a one, or we keep going up to a ten, and I'm not talking to you guys, I'm talking about the guys in the comments, mm. right? Because I've seen these, I've seen these comments before. So where on the spectrum do we want to play?
3: You have a phone, an internet connection, but you've got all of the knowledge you currently have today. But I can't reference no reputation, own, no, no reputation, no case studies, no nothing case like studies. Like yeah, so you're
1: just a normal guy. You just yeah. live at home with your parents. You've got a phone, mm, okay, but, but with your knowledge, okay. I'm going, to,
0: I'm going to redraft this. Right, so go. the normal guy who lives at home with the parents should probably go be a number two or a number three on a team, um, should probably not be off starting a, a company and building a multi-million pound business. Go do your apprenticeship first. Can we move it to like a five or a six? Sure. Five or a six, you've already got access to 20 grand. You've got credit cards. You've got Zoom account. You've got... Um, Two pairs of trainers. You've got two pairs of. Tra- you've got smart shoes and trainers. Like um, so you know you're not you're not. We're not talking about someone who's struggling for you know food and living at home with the parents and all that sort of stuff. I think there's a you know entrepreneurship is a black belt move and it's an advanced move. There's nothing wrong with calling it that. Most people start out in a job, and then they learn their skills and they get some background and some reputation. And they go out and start a business the average age of a successful startup founder is 42. So, you know, when there's we're, we're, it's normally not people um, living at home with their parents. So if we can move, the if we can keep to that.
3: Maybe we should backtrack a bit because there will be people in the comments that don't have any money um, that do want it. Like you said, get an apprenticeship or go to work as a number yeah. two. So what should they be looking for in that first job they get? Because a lot of my friends in the early days didn't want to commit to a job mm. because they wanted to be an entrepreneur, but they felt like, They were uh, pigeonholing themselves into a job for life.
0: So I would encourage them to go something like um, work for a small company that has less than 20 people Mm -hmm. um, so that you get full visibility of how everything works. When you're when you're a company that has less than 20, you're going to be able to see how the sales team sell and how the marketing team generate leads and how the entrepreneur interacts with the team. You'll hear about someone. We need to hire someone. You'll see the whole process as to how someone got hired. If you work in a large corporate, you don't get any of that. They stick you off in the corner. Oh, there's a new person who got hired. I don't know where they came from. Um, Oh, there's leads that show up. I don't know where those leads come from. Um, There's a sales script. I don't know why we have this sales script. I'm just meant to say this thing. So the problem is, is if you work in a large corporate, you are just a tiny little cog in their machine. You don't get to see the machine very, very, very rarely. You don't have any access to the senior leadership team or any of that. So you're not going to learn very much. So you want to be in a small company. Secondly, You wanna be on the demand generation side of the business. So all businesses have supply and demand. Supply is looking after customers once the customers are there and demand is making sure that there are customers in the first place. So marketing and sales, you wanna be in a marketing or sales role because entrepreneurship starts with marketing and sales. And if you can't do the marketing and sales, it doesn't matter whether you can supply or not. Um, So the hard problems, marketing and sales, the easier problem is, is that. Um, And you also probably want to see if you can do something that gets you visibility of the finances Um, so you can see the money
3: flowing through the business. Um, Does it matter what company you pick? Because a lot of people think, I don't know what business I want to start in the future, but I kind of need to know that before I join a team so I learn the right business. As quick
0: as possible, you want to learn business from someone who runs a good growing business. I would say you want to choose someone who's an ambitious entrepreneur, um, they've got a good little team forming, maybe they've won an award, maybe they've got um, some good positive PR, maybe the founder is a bit of an influencer and has 10,000 followers, something something along those lines that sort of tells you that this is not just a, like, you don't want to go work at a fish and chip shop, you want to go and work at, you know, an ambitious startup um, where there's an ambitious rhythm of conversations going on. Um, so, so your first job is to make one sale and the, the biggest, the sale is sell yourself onto a team that's already got momentum. You're gonna learn business that way. Um, and to stop thinking that you're gonna be able to start a, a business off the back. Most, most multi multi-millionaires, they always reference the mentor that they worked for. Mm. And it's not a mentor that they watched YouTube videos on, it's that they worked for. There's a guy who I know who is considered to be one of the most successful CEOs in Europe, worked for Larry Ellison for several years, and was like in the same office as Larry Allison of Oracle. These relationships form, you, you wanna do an apprenticeship under an uh, inspiring entrepreneur first. And then like, you know, I'm only talking about two, two years, right? Do two years on the team. That's if you're under a five, right? So if you're on that scale of one to 10, if you're under a five, you're, you're in no business starting a business, right? You, you, you know, have a side hustle if you wanna have a side hustle. But I would recommend just go all in working for someone who's got traction, got momentum. Join a team, try and be a number three or a four uh, on the team. Try and be in key meetings. Turn up early, leave late. That's what entrepreneurs do anyway. Um, when when you get given a, a, a task by by the person who's the founder, over deliver on that task as fast as humanly possible, um, because they they're, they're testing you. It's not the task there; it's a test. So pass the test.
3: What do you think about working as a freelancer instead of necessarily joining that team full-time? A, a freelancer is shit. I mean, that's how I started. I started out <laughs> as, a, you, well, as a videographer okay. and then I worked in multiple different teams and I saw how well, business coaches okay. operated. But
0: you grew up in a business family. Yeah. So you actually had that, the, you had that awareness that I'm talking about. The reason I say freelancer is shit mm. is because you essentially have all the hard work of a job without the upsides of a scalable business um, so you might as well have a job um, and you have all the stress of a business without the security of a job. Mm. So, you know, so you essentially, you've got the worst of two worlds um, as quick as possible. You want to become an entrepreneur, mm. not a, um, not a, not a freelancer. Business is a team sport. You're going to have to build a team if you want to be a engineer.
2: At the start, just to go kind of link those two things together though, I also started freelancing when I was about 18 and one of my first clients was a startup Uh, And they built an app for referees, for football referees. So very niche, nothing to do with my Mm -hmm. interest at all. You'd think there's nothing to learn there. But I chose to, I was contracted to do a certain amount on a retainer for them every single month. And I chose to do that work in their premises, in their office, small Mm -hmm. team of like five, six people. And doing that, to, to go back to what you said there, let me see how they do payroll and accounting and how they manage the teams and how yep. they do the meetings and how they sketch plans out on the whiteboard. So it was nothing to do with the industry. Mm. It was nothing to do with what I was even doing for them, but it was just being in that scenario.
0: Right. Well, I take it back. If, <laughs> it's if, not you can, shit. <laughs> if you can do, if you can be a freelancer, with the purpose, with the vision, with the outcome mm. of getting in on those meetings, if you can actually be doing it so that that's your way of being part of those teams and that's the best way to be part of maybe even two or three different teams, then that's fine. right? You're, but the key is, is that you're not doing it to be a freelancer, you're doing it to do your apprenticeship. You're actually doing it to get behind the curtain and see what really happens behind the curtain so that you can then have those real life, life lessons um, and also you're gonna. Uh, what, what we really want is that you can earn some money and save some money, that you can get a credit card, um, that you can get, um, you know, a, a laptop and a phone and all of those sorts of things. That you can build some credibility, that you can say that you've worked on some projects that succeeded. That you can draw from that experience. You can get some recommendations or referrals from from people you've worked with. So that sort of stuff. It's building your foundations pre business, right? So, right. so let's just level that off. It's a so freelancer
1: sometimes shit. Sometimes,
0: sometimes. if if you think that freelancer on its own is the end goal. Yeah, right. It's a good stepping stone to learn.
3: Yeah, I I know. I met a few people, a few makeup artists, actually, that I I said, oh, you're going to be doing this in a couple of years. What's your long term vision? And they went, yeah, I'm just going to keep doing this. Whereas I was like, no, I I think I'm made for more. I want to do more with my life. I'm seeing what these guys are doing. I want to implement some kind of business. I can't be working day in, day out. I was working like long nights sometimes just on some edits, so it's just not sustainable. And
2: I guess the problem is you become that you become the violin player rather than the conductor of the yeah, orchestra.
0: Yeah. yeah, and a lot of great conductors start out as violin players. So, um, so it's not necessarily bad if you know that that's a stepping stone. Um, ultimately, you never get too far ahead if you're selling your time for money. Um, so ultimately you need to develop intellectual property, media, software, other assets that are going to be the f- fundamentals of your business. Um, so if we if we basically say that's one to five level and then obviously you could start out as a super experienced entrepreneur, that's level 10. So if we sort of said that we're at like five or a six or a seven in the, in the game of like zero to a million, how about that?
3: Sounds good. All right, yeah, so I what's I next? Do, I do have one more question. I know Go you, you want to move Go on it. to no, five. No, 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 fine. But I know a lot of people in the comments that uh, they did last time, they said, you found a mentor, my dad found a mentor when he was younger, I obviously had a mentor built in. They think it's luck that you're able to find that mentor. How do you sell yourself to that person or that small business in the first place? I think that's the step that most people are missing.
0: So everything happens because you pitch it into existence. So what happens is that we, we pitch our life into existence, we speak it into existence. So what you have to do is pitch this into existence. What do I mean by that? You start walking around to everyone you know and say, I really want to join a startup. I want to join a fast growth startup with an inspiring founder. I want to join their team doing sales or marketing or something like that. I'm looking for that opportunity. And you just tell people, that's what I'm looking to do. And someone will say, I know someone who does that. I know someone who's got a startup. Oh, I work in this company and we actually have this startup that we work with. Maybe I could make an introduction. And you say, I'd really, really like that introduction, right? And then you contact that person through a warm referral and you basically say, thanks for the introduction. Um, I'd really like to have a meeting with you just, just to sh- talk about whether I could join the team. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. So how I did it was exactly that. I was very unhappy at university. I started telling people I'm unhappy at university and I wanna join a startup. I wanna join something. I wanna, I wanna leave and work for an inspiring entrepreneur. I wanna work for someone who inspires me. I wanna work really, really hard, do whatever I'm told and learn, Um, I'm looking for someone who can kind of take me into their team. And then through family connections, oh, we know someone who's starting a business at the moment, Um, don't know how it's gonna go, but if you want, I can make an introduction, maybe you can have a meeting. I got a 30 minute meeting, knock on the door, and I turned up early, pumped, uh, ready to go, ready to try and sell myself, ended up having a three hour meeting with the guy. And um, he basically said, look, we haven't got a business name or a bank account, Um, we're getting started right from the beginning Um, now what was lucky is that we worked hard and we ended up building um, like six million of revenue in two years um, or building up to six million of revenue in in the two years built a team of 60 people so yes it did work out really well if it wasn't working out really well I would have start pitching I want to join another startup this one's not taking off I want to be part of a startup that takes off so The thing is, you can sit like if people put as much energy and effort as they do into complaining, into just pitching for stuff that they want, they'd get lift off.
3: So, so in a way, it is kind of luck that you found your mentor, but you can increase your luck by putting more of those feelers out. You can also decrease your luck by complaining. Mm -hmm. No one
0: wants to work with someone who's who's like, eh, eh, what about the person who does this? Do, what about do this?
2: you need something tangible to offer though? Because for example, we, you know, we get 100, not 100 DMs a day, but we get a lot of DMs every single day saying, we'll do anything, we'll work for free. Just And and granted, if they got into the circle, they'd learn so much. Yeah. But it's kind of like, we also need something in return to make that it, work. It's more well. of a burden,
3: isn't it? If they yeah. say, oh, we'll work for free. Well, actually yeah. we're going to be teaching you for free and you're not actually going to be helping us out very much.
0: But you guys are past the point right? You're already already a super fast growth business, right? So it's already too late for people to do that. The other thing too, is because you're talking about this stuff, everyone's going to be attracted. You need to join a startup that's early stage that doesn't have like millions and millions of viewers every day. All of that sort of stuff is going to like, you can't be, you can't be too obvious. Like if you say, oh, I need a girlfriend. I know I'll go and just contact that girl on the front cover of the magazine that i just right it's like well it's too late for that right you know she's already on the front cover of the magazine you guys are already on the front cover of the magazine so it's just too it's too much of a jump um what what you're looking for is someone who doesn't have uh thousands of people every year saying that sort of stuff you're looking for someone who's excited because you've got time and passion and that you'll you know you're going to follow orders and and take a little bit off their time uh, a little bit off their plate um, go for
1: that what you're saying is exactly right because if you think about it it's exactly what I did like I had a little thing going a little side hustle um, I was making some money no, it the wasn't pandemic. a
3: little thing it was pretty good it was pretty impressive. yeah
1: I, I was doing pretty good um, just, just like a one year business that I did through the pandemic and then how I spun much did it. you
3: turn over <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, span it into working with these guys and uh, yeah I get the same thing in our discord someone was saying something, it's like you struck gold you get to learn from, mm. from Mark and Curtis Tilbury and all of that stuff and it's like yeah but when I was doing that what were you doing though mm. you know where, where were you to be seen when I was capitalising on these opportunities I think we struck gold
3: as well because you brought a lot to the team and we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for you coming on board yeah because I think what we, the channel was about 400,000 subscribers at the time yeah. so it was much smaller we mm-hmm. didn't have
1: you know all of this stuff so it was a very very different space I remember LA.
3: we were Working late at night, coming up with content ideas, doing scripts and all of that stuff. And now you've uh, transitioned into monetization, selling mm. the ads and everything. Mark
1: doesn't agree though. When you said that we
3: wouldn't <laughs> be here without me, he pulled a really nasty face. Well, it, you know,
1: he, lo- I, he loves you really. It's love. It's yeah. love. Um, Can we get that on camera, Mark? <laughs> the, the,
0: the, You make a good point. You've always got to be moving ahead anyway. So when I didn't have that opportunity, I was running nightclub parties at my local nightclub and filling nightclubs um, and getting and getting that happening. I was doing door-to-door sales on the weekend, uh, setting appointments for a roof insulation company. That was proper like just eating dog shit, right? That was just knocking on doors and are you interested in roof insulation, right? So like I was moving, 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 moving. When I went and spoke to John, and he said, well, tell me a bit about yourself. I've just been running six nightclub parties. We've had over 1,000 people attend at each of our nightclub parties, $10 a head. So we've made 10000 a night, six nights in a row, six times. And he was like, oh, that's cool. That's great. Like you're 18, 19 years old and you're filling nightclubs. Most people you know, are not doing anything like that. And then he said, what sales experience have you had? Well, I've just been a door-to-door salesman knocking on doors. I get paid per appointment that I set. I'm out there four or five hours every Saturday morning. It's like, oh, wow, okay. Well, if you're willing to eat dog shit, then you probably, you know, you're going to do well. You know, you're going to hit the phones and pick up the phones. So I wasn't just sitting there going, oh, I need a lucky opportunity. Like I was doing the the best thing I had access to at the time. It's like I'll take that step. It's a one step forward. I'll keep looking Um yeah. like, And I've heard you say before a few times, I think that you,
2: you know, you would have been successful with or without John, but that having that mentor just sped up the process. So you weren't just waiting on them to hand you everything. They were just kind of a, an amplifier. To, yeah. And
0: like, I, I, I even cut out a piece of the story there. There was a guy called Blake that I did go and try and work for his startup. And within three months, I knew that this wasn't going to go anywhere. And that was actually, I quit with Blake and went and found John. So, you know, like I you know, I, I did actually, there was a part of the story where I actually went and joined a startup that wasn't right, um, you know.
3: Yeah I think it's really important to try and understand the business that you're applying for as well trying to get into the team with because the way that you approached it you had suggestions or things we could do better I was like this guy's really on my wavelength he's thinking the same way and he can mm. add to the business and it didn't feel like a burden it felt like I was bringing on an asset. Yeah and
1: then I also obviously
3: had the bit of
1: leverage where it's like well I'm already making a thousand pound a week anyway with what I'm doing mm. so then it positions me as someone that knows something because he's doing well in the first place. And then also I was constantly consuming the type of content Mm -hmm. that we created. So I was completely plugged into that world. I was like, you know, I've got 30,000 pounds invested. You make investing content. Mm. So I understand that as well. And just constantly positioning myself to win in that area. And you
3: weren't playing any games with the text messages as well. Like (laughs) I messaged you, came back like one second later, boom, 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 boom. And then we could do the deal right then and there. And I knew you were the guy. Otherwise, if you were just thinking, oh yeah, I'll keep him waiting for a bit. And it wouldn't have worked because I knew that you weren't on it. Yeah, nice. no, I'm not fucking around. I'm no. looking to get in there. So anyway, let's get back to five. You wanted to get to the well, step five. Well, let's or, make millions, right? Yeah. Let's do it.
0: Let's do the, uh, the let's, fun bit. Yeah, let's yeah. do the fun bit. Okay, so here's here's what the first four things you need when you're going to start a business is you need chaos. Concept, audience, offer sales, C-A-O-S, right? So you've got to have a good concept. That's the idea you got to build an audience, you got to construct an offer, and then you got to make sales. Those are the four fundamentals of getting started. So the first thing I would do is I'd walk through the let's walk through those four fundamentals. So the concept is essentially, what are you going to be working on? And um, typically, there's a few different ways you can approach that. If you've got any success story from the last three years, you can turn that success story into a business. So there's a sentence that I always like to kind of play with, which is, um, for a certain type of person, we did something very special, and it got a rare and valuable result. So, if I look back through my last three years and say, "Was there a certain type of person that we did something special and we got a rare and valuable result?" If I can find a story that meets that criteria, there's a business in that. So, you might say, "Oh, I worked with someone to double their LinkedIn following. Um, we posted every every day for for nine months, and it actually got them ten thousand followers on LinkedIn." Well, Bang! There's a LinkedIn management software, uh, LinkedIn management service, mm-hmm. there. Um, you might say, oh, we sold all these clothes online. We went around to the neighbors and we got all their clothes and we did a 50-50 deal and we sold those online. Okay, maybe there's a business opportunity in that. So anything where you did something, got a great result, and you can analyze that case study, there's there's potentially a business in that. So that's one angle to go with. What if What if you haven't necessarily... Done that. If, if someone's sitting there thinking, okay. I've had a job, but I haven't really done anything
2: I'm that's just, got a result. I'm just gonna. I got. Uh, and I really feel for people like down, that because
1: so many put, people don't have an idea, yeah. and that's the hardest part. And but I really do feel for people. Remember,
0: like that. this is why I put down the ground rules. Okay, right. I put down the ground rules for exactly this. But <laughs> what, Breaking the rules, man. <laughs> but, but what if I? But what if I'm just? Uh, what if I can't talk to people? What if, what if I if, am a worm? What if I'm in a worm? You've been the hater. What if I was just a puddle? (laughs)
1: yeah you you are
3: right right you are right so we got it we got to get past that and
0: it doesn't have to be the world's biggest success story but you got to find something that was a success story and doesn't even it can be that you worked on a team that did it that you you were working in a company and we we took a british business and launched them in france and it's like okay great we now have the possibility of taking British businesses to France whatever it is you've you've done something in your background and you've achieved a success story you can expand upon that turn it into a business if you're ready to start a business you probably have three or four to choose from so that's in answer to your question if you're the person who's ready to be a, a number one a founder then you've probably got plenty to choose from and if not go join a team All Right? so go Rewind fifteen minutes. Watch the last fifteen gotcha. minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's one one approach. The next approach is you can go onto startup awards. Um, so there's websites where they list who are the finalists for startup awards, and these are new businesses that are really going gangbusters. And you want to go through and start uh, making a list of all the stuff that is is trending at the moment so you might say oh look at all these ai businesses and or you might say look at these um gardening businesses i I didn't realize that you know gardening or roofing or or putting boilers in you can go looking at these kind of like startup awards see who are all the finalists who are the companies that are winning see if that triggers any ideas for you so that's one. that's another way to come up with an idea Uh, another amazing way to come up with an idea is go to someone who's already super successful and ask them two questions one question is what do you think is a really good business idea, but you just don't have the time for? Um, and they'll go, oh, this. And you say, if I were to do it, would you take 10% of the business in order to be a guide or a mentor, or just open some doors? No, no, no fixed time requirement, but like, you know, I'll, I'll go and do that idea. Um, or you might ask them, <clears throat> if they're a really big business, what do you think you want to acquire? Like what sort of businesses would you love to buy? Um, if you were to buy a business for 20 million, what do you think would be a, a, a purchase, a 20 million dollar business or 20 million pound business that you want to buy? Um, it's really nice to kind of start with exits. If you can, you can go talk to an investment banker and ask them, you know, what sort of businesses are selling? What sort of businesses do you think are going to be selling in the next few years? What are you hearing out there in the in the world about what businesses become very valuable? They'll give you a blueprint. They'll actually say, well, it should have recurring revenue and it should have some proprietary technology. It should have at least 35 employees. So they're going to go through and go, boom, boom, boom. These are the things that a $20 million business is going to look like. So you can actually start with that end in mind. So there's different ways to approach. What I think you should do is start with a journal and start coming up with ideas. Every day, come up with a new idea until you get 10 to 20 ideas, right? And then you start narrowing it down to the three that you really like, that you feel a sense of passion and alignment to, and then shop them around, talk to experienced entrepreneurs and say, I'm going to start either one, two or three. Can I ask you, what do you like or hate about this? What do you like or hate about this? What do you like or hate about this? Give them three things. Don't ask, never ask, what should I do? Say, I'm going to do one, two or three. Which one do you Which one do you think I should do and why? Um, that way people can get their head around it. Um, it's a very hard question to answer. What should I be doing with my life? Uh, no one's got the answer for that. So should I do this, this or this and why? I think what's really interesting about
2: all of this is you've looked at everything from what does the market want what does the market need what have i done for other people in the past you haven't mentioned anything to do with what do i enjoy or what are my interests or what are my passions Mm. why is that
0: well the brain is very easily fooled into what is passion um if you play super mario um Within a few seconds, you get ding, ding, ding. There's a little money popping out the box. And then a few seconds later, ding, ding, ding. And that starts a dopamine loop. And suddenly you'll spend hours and hours playing Super Mario. If I had have asked you, are you passionate about Super Mario? You're like, not really. Until you start playing it and it gets you hooked. I've met people whose business is construction and they're suddenly passionate about construction. And it just happens to be that they make $4 million a year from construction. And I've met people who are passionate about recruitment, because every time they make a recruitment sale, they make 60 grand. It's funny when that little box goes ding, 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 um, you get passionate pretty quick. But, but I guess there's some instances where people might have hobbies, for example. I might like
2: baking or football or golf and uh, people's advice uh, to them would be, well, why don't you, you know, start a, a bakery or, or start a golf teaching uh, course or whatever?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm not big on that because there's a very good chance that it's a hobby for a reason. Anything that sounds cool, is probably saturated a lot of those businesses are high volume low value businesses like bakeries and you know all of that sort of stuff so i'm i'm not big on on that sort of thing i'm i'm big on identifying a market opportunity now with that said passion should be that you feel an alignment to the work right so the type of work that you'll be doing you can get aligned to it you can actually say i'm looking forward to doing that work um me personally, I don't really like working with my hands, like physical labor. Um, you know, uh, I'm not a I'm not a thingy kind of guy. I like working with my mind. I wouldn't take on any business that really kind of was a hands on, get your hands dirty kind of business. Literally, get your hands dirty business. I know that I I don't look forward to that kind of work. So there are certain things that I kind of would rule out because it's like I just I just know myself well enough that I'm not going to push through and and do that sort of thing. I want to do something that I feel excited reading reading about and I feel excited by the opportunity of it. And I like the idea, not just of the money, but I like the idea of the type of work. I could see myself doing that type of work. I could see myself getting through it. Here's the other thing. We talked about snowboarding earlier. I hated snowboarding in the beginning. It was only after I got reasonable at it that I loved it and I love it. I I hate having a year where I don't go snowboarding. I go, I wanna go snowboarding every single year now. I just absolutely love snowboarding, but I hated it in the beginning but also no one's gonna pay me to snowboard. Um, So it's not a business, it's a hobby.
3: How about um, the people that see YouTubers making so much money and they wanna become a YouTuber when they're older? I think it's one of the most popular things kids wanna do when they grow up. So
0: early stage, Go work for a YouTube channel, see what it's like behind the scenes, um, join a team, um, and then see if you still wanna do that after afterwards. Um, there is something called a moving bus, right? So a moving bus is an opportunity that has left the station and you're now chasing a moving bus. Um, so you gotta figure out, is this a long-term opportunity that has new entrants and new entrants can do well? Um, or is this a moving bus that you just had to be around in 2006 or, and if you weren't like, unfortunately, this thing's moved
2: let's say I'm standing at the bus stop and it's raining and I'm waiting for the, the next few buses to come by. What are those next few buses, in your opinion, those big industries, those big opportunities that are coming in 2024 to 2027, for example?
0: Uh,
3: AI is the biggest bus in town, right? AI is everything at the moment. So double-decker bus. That Do you not think it's left the station though? Because no. it seems like everyone's making startups around AI and they're not actually their own software. It's just built on the back of ChatGPT. That's fine, that's fine,
0: that's fine. So in the early days of electrification, Mm. they came up with electricity and people said, oh, I'm gonna create a kettle, I'm gonna create a toaster, I'm gonna create a a this, that and the other. So people created stuff that plugged into electricity. Mm. um, And essentially most of those startups are doing the same. They're saying we don't have to train a large language model because that exists, but we can find a way to use a large language model to add value um, and we're gonna gonna create a, a, a kettle or a toaster for AI um so essentially those and they're, those businesses will make millions um i've got two of those businesses and they're already like you know crushing it so um you know i, I came up with an idea recently called bookmagic.ai with my team the team actually came up with it um we just uh ran a waitlist campaign and um off the back of the waiting list had uh, like a 1,000 people sign up to the waiting list. Off the back of that, we raised 300,000 for 10% of the business. So a 3 million pound valuation on day one, pre-revenue. Now we've got a team. We've got got this thing ready to rock and roll. We'll end up with 4,000 people who pay 40 a month um, within about a year or so. So we'll have 160,000 a month of recurring revenue. You know, that's getting close to 2 million. You know, that puts you at a 10 to 20 million valuation. Um, You know, these things these things go, you know, you can. So this is a real thing. AI is a real thing. And it's going to be a real thing, certainly in that time frame.
1: When you raise that 300,000, would you say that that's based off the credibility that you already have? Or is that thousand people on a wait list and a good idea enough to get you free? Because 300,000 for 10% of a business that isn't making any money It's quite favorable terms for you, I would say. So how are you able to actually get that? Is that because you are Daniel Priestley or because of the product?
0: There's a a bit of that. So who is the leadership team is definitely a a core consideration. It wasn't just me as a leadership team. Got an expert in publishing. We've got a great CTO who's built stuff for um, Lloyds Bank and all these kind of things. Um, So we've got an amazing leadership team, all round leadership team. Um, We had a thousand people on the waiting list Everyone who joined the waiting list was asked about price points that they're willing to pay and goals that they're willing to achieve. So we we're able to extrapolate that data really, really effectively. Our CFO built a financial model with fairly sensible assumptions that goes three years into the future and it looks at how many users we can add, how much we'll churn, um, and it's based upon you know expert-level insights into how these businesses work. So then when you project it forward, you go, okay, this business conservatively could be worth $30 million uh, within three or four years um, so three million to get in and get a 10x return for as an angel investor is essentially what they're looking for most angel investors know that they're investing into something that's pre-revenue so they're looking for a sensible leadership team with a good market opportunity with validation and data and a, and a sensible plan to exit um and then they're just looking to like what would be if i take the day of exit valuation and then i you know bring that down by five or ten uh, multiple of five or 10, then we say, okay, well, great. That's a sensible sensible way we can get on.
3: At the stage um, that you're at now with all the money that you have, why raise money and not just fund it yourself?
0: Because when you exit, um, a what's you, there's a few things that really help. A valuation story is very helpful. So if you're selling a business that's 100% owned, it doesn't have what, what you consider to be a valuation story. So a valuation story is, is basically smart angel investors came in and valued the business at $3 million here. Some more came in and valued it at $6 million here. Some more came in and valued it here. And essentially what you're doing is building a valuation chart. So the reason that Apple shares or Microsoft shares are very uh, easy to trade is they have a long history of trading And people can see that history of trading. So therefore, you're establishing points of valuation in the market. You're establishing data points. Investors love data points. Um, There's other reasons too. Angel investors often bring in the exit. They want an exit as well. So if you choose the correct angel investors, you've now got 20 people pushing the wheelbarrow rather than one. So it's not even about the money. It's just having good people who have stuck a little bit of money in. It puts it on the top of their mind awareness. I only ever raise 15 grand from from a sensible angel who's got plenty of money. I'll take 15 grand. Um, So I'll take 20 angel investors. Um, So now I've got 20 people who have probably built and sold stuff before who are now aware of the business, invested in the business. They're out there looking for opportunities. They're out there looking for the exit. Um, So all of that just makes my life super easy. If I do that, it means that I can have multiple businesses rather than just one.
2: Does it also presumably get rid of a little bit of risk on your part if you're, you haven't invested
0: millions of your own money into a project? The, the biggest risk is that you get obsessed with your own ideas and that you don't uh, get the ideas punched up by someone who's smarter and more objective. So the biggest risk is not the money. The biggest risk is that I'm obsessed, that everyone's got to have a stripy coffee cup and I'm going to put everything into my stripy coffee cup business. And then a, a sensible third party says, Dan, look, I know you're passionate about this, but there's nothing that says that these, this is very different. Like especially something like AI, you you said, oh, you know, is it really – so? I want to get other angel investors asking tough questions. Well, where, where did you get that assumption from? Why do you think the churn's only going to be 7% per month? Why, do, why did you not choose a high number? Um, how do you think you're going to get these 160 new users every single month? How do, where are they going to come from? Why do you think it's going to cost £12 per lead and not £16 a lead? Right, so you, you know you, when you go through a good process of angel investors, they, they want to have a look at the financial forecast, they want to have a look at the business plan, Um, Who might you exit to? Have you thought of this? They often raise way better ideas. They're more objective. Um, They're seeing it clearly from a different side of the table. So it it really comes down to this. It's professionalism. You can be an entrepreneur who says, oh, I'm gonna try and get as much of the equity as possible because I'm gonna put in my own 300,000 and then I don't have to report to anyone and I don't have to any, there's no governance, there's no board meetings, it's just my business. Okay, that's a great thing for a lifestyle business. But if you wanna build something and sell it, you want governance, you want smart people around, you want objectivity, you want people um, asking tough questions. So it's it's what I would call a professional level of entrepreneurship. Why would Lewis Hamilton have other people changing his tires? He could change his tires himself. Mm. Why, would he, why would he have an external person who owns the team? He's rich, he could own his own Formula One team. Well, everyone brings something to the table. Um, so when you say I'm committed to a level of professionalism as an entrepreneur, you wanna go through uh, a worn path of how businesses become valuable. You want to you follow what's called best practices as to how a business becomes valuable and exits.
3: Okay, so still in this idea stage, if someone's listening to you and they've, they've heard about AI and they decided, I want to do something in AI, what are some opportunities right now that they could focus on? <laughs> that aren't being fulfilled. Quite
0: literally, every industry globally is gonna have to think about how it exists with AI. So everything's up for grabs. You take any industry you know anything about and ask the question, well, what does AI do to this industry? What is the opportunity that AI, what's the threat? Who stands to make money? Who stands to lose money? So um, AI is what's called a general purpose technology, which is like internet electricity, printing press, um combustion engines steam engines these are all general purpose technologies which means that they impact all industries at all levels so ai is the mother of uh general purpose technologies um it literally impacts every industry at all levels so you can it's almost there's too much to to look at but you could say how does ai impact you know i've previously been a lawyer how's it going to impact law what does a co-pilot for lawyers do um What is the one tiny little thing that that I can pinpoint here that I know a lot about? And how do I get AI to do that thing? Mm. So um, there's all just literally the whole world has just become a massive pool of opportunity simply because we have a new general purpose technology. So I guess you could have a
2: business that just connects any, you know, you might have some sort of AI product and then you can go and almost plug that into any other business and connect them to ai in that way or is it best to pick a a more specific niche of like we're just working with lawyers who want this product
0: yeah i I, rather than the word niche i always prefer the word campaign so campaigns work when there's a very focused campaign so let's say if i was nike if i said these shoes are for everyone who plays any sport that's a that's not a focused campaign so those shoes won't sell very well. But if I say these are skateboarding shoes and these are basketball shoes and these are tennis shoes, then, oh, I play tennis. I need the tennis shoes. I skateboard. I need the skateboarding shoes. So these are called focused campaigns. When you're starting a business, you want to start with a focused campaign. You want to say, one day we'll do everything. But for now, we're just focusing on real estate lawyers who do... Um, tenancy agreements, and we do this, and we actually focus on this type of tenancy agreement. So you just, and you just drill into it, and you say, that's the focus campaign we're gonna launch with, and we're just gonna launch a nice focus campaign and see if we can make some sales there.
3: So you got your idea, what are you doing next? What are the next
0: steps? Next thing is audience. Now, this is really important. Don't build the idea unless you've got leads, right? So everything's downstream from lead generation. Everything starts with your ability to test the market before you build anything. So what most people do is we think about supply side versus demand side. Supply side is, can I build it? Can I create something that people will value? It assumes that you've got this flood of customers that may not exist. So what we need to do is instead, we need to launch something called a waiting list or a registration of interest list and start building an audience. So here's the couple of things that I'm gonna do. I'm gonna build an audience by setting up four lead magnets. Uh, I wanna have a waiting list or registration of interest list. That's simply where people register because they know something's coming and they'd like more information. Um, I'm going to create a discussion group, maybe Discord, maybe WhatsApp, but I'm going to invite people to join the discussion group about that topic. So I'll pick the topic that I'm talking about. So let's say I'm doing a um, an AI startup for contract law or something like that. Okay, great. It's a discussion group for people who want to talk about how, how AI is going to impact a contract law. And I'm trying to get people to join the group. Uh, I'm going to run an introduction event, how AI might impact this particular thing. And I'm going to run that every week for as many weeks as I can and try and get four or five people to help on a Zoom call and do a live event. Um, and I'm going to create what, it, what is called an online scorecard or assessment tool so that people can self-assess, do I need this thing in, in my life? So um, let's say I'm launching a fitness-related business. Are you ready to lose weight? Are you ready to run a marathon? Um, answer the quiz questions. So I've got four lead generators there. And I'm gonna see if I can just do some cold outreach, DM 3000 people. uh, And I'm just gonna start telling a bit about my story. So I might say over the last five years, I've worked with companies to do this, this and this. um, And we've really found that there's a great opportunity to improve this result while reducing stress and getting rid of the risks. Um, Here's a a, a wait list, join the waiting list if you want some more information, we're gonna be launching a business in the next six months, right? So I'll just send that to 1000 people. Then I'll say, I've just come up with an online scorecard um, so you can test whether you're ready to do X, Y, and Z, answer 15 questions, and it'll help you to see whether you're ready to launch a YouTube channel or ready to do a thing. Oh, okay, cool, I'll, I'll fill that in. So I'm testing my lead magnets, and I'm mostly using cold DMs, cold outreach. I'm, I'm aiming to send like three, four, five thousand 4 5,000 cold DMs anyone who's got a hashtag that, that indicates they're interested, anyone who's got something in their bio that might interest uh, that they're interested, anyone who follows a certain account and because they follow that account they must be interested in that topic. I'm just going to message them all. Um, and it's going to have a terrible result right because obviously it's going to have a terrible result
3: i remember doing that in the early days of starting my youtube channel i'd go on to all of the top youtubers see who followed them most recently on twitter follow everyone back and then send them an auto dm to check out my youtube channel Yeah, and my subscribe it was a long process but i managed to get about fifteen thousand subscribers on my first channel and that helped snowball it creates
0: this it creates that first you imagine business is like a big concrete wheel and it's so hard to get it moving But once it's moving, it's hard to stop it. But you've got to just suck an egg and say, okay, first up, I'm going to do some cold outreach. So that's going to be one of the strategies. I'm going to be sending a lot of cold DMs and seeing what do they respond to. If I'm more advanced, I'll do A versus B. Are you interested in this or this? Um, I'll send them to different landing pages to see testing, you know, what is it? Every single one of those lead magnets, I'm going to be asking five or six questions. So name, email, and I'm trying to get a little bit of data. Um, How have you experienced this problem? What are you hoping to achieve? What price point do you think is a reasonable price point for this particular thing? Um, What have you tried in the past that didn't work? So I'm going to ask certain questions to try and figure out my marketplace um, pretty well. The next thing I'm going to do, I'm going to start hosting high-end dinners. Um, or lunches and I'm going to get a very fancy restaurant with private dining and I'm going to negotiate with them to try and get um, a few private dining experiences for maybe 40 or 50 ahead and fixed menu and all that sort of stuff and what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach out to anyone who's influential in the industry and invite them to a private lunch at a really fancy place so I'm going to say hey look I've got this really nice restaurant in Mayfair we've got a private dining experience for some of the top people in the industry would you like to come and join and they go yeah fair enough. So I'm gonna put 10, 15, 12 people around a table. I'm gonna introduce myself. I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm launching a business in this space. Um, I'd love to have a one-to-one with you. I'd love to talk to you about how we could get involved and how we could partner together. Um, but for now, let's have a nice lunch, meet some people. I'm gonna position myself as one of the top players in the industry as fast as I can through some private private dinner experiences.
3: It's, it's crazy you say that because when we were on, uh, in Orlando, we actually went to a private dinner, exactly like you're saying, and it was run by the startup, wasn't it, Dad? So yeah, they paid for the whole experience and we were there and they got all of these influencers together and we thought, this is fantastic, they're so nice. But thinking about it with a business brain on, they were doing the exact right thing. They were just moving straight into the top end Some, one.
1: Something that you just mentioned, the, the scorecards. How well does that work for, for people that may be looking to do a similar thing in terms of like acquiring customers and stuff? Because I'm thinking that like psychologically, if I'm answering questions and you're scoring me, It's kind of like, I feel like I want one of them whoop bands so that then when I wake up in the morning and it says, you slept good, I can go, oh, I did sleep good and then feel like I'm having a good day. So if it says 85%, you know, this product is for you, it makes me think, oh, that is for me. But then also on the flip side, maybe if it says, you know, 15%, this isn't right for you. They think, well, no, fuck you. It is, it is for me because I've, I've said it's for me and now I'm going to do it anyway, even though it told me not to because I want to show you that I can do it, even though you're saying <laughs> I can Such a you mindset then. Most but, people would go, oh, maybe it's not no, for me. No, though. no, I think a lot of people would, would still <laughs> buy it.
0: It leverages something called assessment-based selling. Assessment-based selling is probably the most powerful way of selling anything. So rather than trying to sell the thing, you sell the assessment to see if you need the thing and then the assessment gives you some value, valuable insights. And then that makes it very easy to sell the thing. So uh, all of the medical industry is based on assessment-based selling. You go in there and say, I've got a sore arm. And they say, let's have an x-ray. And then they, they say, oh, now that we've got the x-ray results, we can see that your arm needs this, you know, cast put on it. So that is uh, essentially doing a diagnosis and, and doctors sell the diagnostic. And then once they've got the diagnostic, then they sell the, um, the, the pharmaceutical product.
1: Okay, so this sounds like a great way for people to... You know, get started in acquiring customers. How actionably would you say for someone to actually go about doing that? So, I, I have no idea how to do it. Okay. What should I actually do? How do I do it? So, it used to be really
0: hard to do it, and it used to cost ten grand to set these up. I set up four of these for ten grand each, uh, and then we built Score App. Um, so, there's a reason that I love these because I built a startup around this. So, Score App is this incredible platform that our team have built. Um, AI does all the work, it writes 1500 words worth of content, it lays out the landing page, and then it gives you the questionnaire, and then it gives you the results page. And you literally it takes, I don't know, five minutes, 10 minutes to just guide the AI. And then it does all the work for you saving you about 10, 15 hours worth of work. And then you've got a scorecard and you can set up a free account on ScoreApp, And then you can pay 29 a month if you want to get collect 100 leads a month. Um, you can pay 59 a month if you want 1000 leads a month. So it's very easy. Uh, it used to be very hard and very expensive, and what we've done is made it super simple, super easy. We've got sixty different templates in there. Um, thanks for the setup on uh, on the there. <laughs> Let's say you've got a mastermind. Rather than saying buy my mastermind, it's like see if you qualify for the mastermind. See if you would see if take this questionnaire. See if you'd be accepted on the mastermind.
2: Yeah, it's like see if we want you. Yeah, totally. And looks. it creates that illusion of. Like there's a barrier, there's a barrier to entry, which everyone wants to. Or, or it could be a reality.
0: Achieve. It could be that you do have plenty of people, yeah. and you do want to have a, a, a level of people who who come on board. Um, or you could ask, let's see if you'll get value from this sort of a mastermind. Maybe it's not for you, right? So the the beauty of an assessment is it adds an objective measure as to whether you would need this or not, or want this or not. So powerful. It's one of the. It's actually one of the ways we scaled all the different companies. I've always been a massive fan of. Um, getting my sales team to take people through a checklist. Um, So like a super basic example is just we've got a checklist that figures out whether this is for you or not. Can I ask you some questions on the checklist? People love that because then they're like, oh, it's an objective way of measuring whether I need this or not.
2: And I guess it's great for you as well to know that the customers that you then do acquire are, you know, their lifetime value is probably going to be quite high because there are people that actually are going to benefit rather than, yeah, you could say, oh, I just want as many people. I don't really care selfishly if they're qualified or not, but they're not going to be good long-term customers. They're not going to leave reviews. They're not going to give you a good reputation. They may even want a refund. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yep. So you cut all of that out with the assessment and and also it sets really good ground rules, it sets good expectations, all of that. So it's a great, great strategy. So the two things that I'm doing is I'm building an audience of my own um, through discussion groups and wait lists and scorecards. And I'm also building a high level network at the same time. So I'm doing the dinners every week, I'm going to be doing a lunch or a dinner. Like when I went to Dubai recently, I'm not. I'm not hugely well known in Dubai, but one of the things I did is I've got a friend of mine who has a hundred foot yacht, <laughs> right? Help. Okay. What if you don't have a friend? I get. What it. if you're a worm? <laughs> I, I get that that's a step up from the puddle, but um, but I've got a friend who's got a hundred foot yacht, and I said to him, um, mate, the hundred foot yacht is just sitting there. Can I invite? 15 people onto the yacht, we do burgers, we do um, we, we order some nice burgers and we have, just hang out on the boat, we don't even take it out. He said, yeah, of course, I'd love to attend that. And I said, great, I'm gonna bring some cool people. So I contacted all the people who I kind of tentatively, arms reach, second second degree contact, no. And I said, hey, look, I'm doing some burgers on the boat. It's a 100 foot yacht and some nice burgers. Would you like to come and hang out? Everyone said yes. Ended up with 15 absolutely phenomenal people 10 million to 20 million followers between the group of people on that boat. Um, And suddenly I'm in that Dubai scene. So when I go back to Dubai, I've now got 10, 15 people who are the top people. So by organizing one thing, now I get it, okay, it's a yacht and blah, blah, blah. There's nothing that would genuinely stop you from reaching out to a yacht-broking company and saying, hey, I can bring 15 top millionaires onto a boat uh, if you want to host us for some drinks, Um, also you can go to a really nice restaurant and say, if you've got a private dining, can we do a lunch on a day that you're normally quiet for 50 bucks a head, 50 quid a head? Um, there's, there's ways you can approach this
1: provided you're not a worm or a puddle Uh, and then you can actually, it's all about how many doors you actually knock on, because I see people as well. They make YouTube videos, like, you know, trying to travel across this ocean on someone's boat. that I don't know, you know, whatever. And they're going around and just asking people, I'm trying to do this thing. Can we do this? So, oh, I don't know someone with a yacht. So therefore I can't do that. But how many people have you actually tried to speak to? Where have you positioned yourself to actually receive this luck? And yeah, just no, one's I mean, people,
0: people tag themselves on a yacht, uh, on a, on a, on a marina. You literally just say, hey, I you've got a yacht. Um, I want to put a, on a party. Can we partner with it? I'll bring all these amazing people. Uh, and we d- don't even take the boat out. We'll just have some drinks on the boat. right? Someone, you might have to contact 30 people in order to get a guest. Someone wants to do something with their yacht. Um, it's you know, kind
2: of like that high school dynamic, isn't it? Who, like, you know, who's the the most popular person in the high school? It's the person hosting the parties at the weekend. Exactly. And if you can be that, that, that host of the parties, then you're going to be popular in That's that industry. Totally it. Yeah, yeah, I think we need a yacht.
3: No, we just need a friend with a yacht, friend with a yacht. No, so, I think or we a need friend one. with a friend with a yacht. There we go. Exactly. <laughs>
1: Okay, yeah. Mark wants a helicopter instead. I'd, I'd, it's yeah. hard to take 15 people yeah. on a helicopter.
0: You got to really hang on. It's difficult you. to fry the burgers as well
2: on the helicopter.
1: <laughs> but it's still cool though, and it would save a lot of time. Much more practical beneficial. Uh, you know and, what you uh, need to uh,
0: beneficial. do? Write it down in your journal, wait 20 years, and then you'll get Obviously the helicopter. Obviously, it's going to come, <laughs> Yeah, of
3: course. <laughs> I noticed you didn't include um, content creation. You said about the groups and everything like that, but why didn't you say content creation? Um,
0: look, content creation is great if you put out some content about what it is that you're up to. Mm. Some people respond. Bond. I'm assuming that people don't have a huge following or audience. So yeah, okay, have some content. If someone goes searching and sees what you're about, they can they can see that you're doing that. Um, but I want to be a bit more pro- proactive. Content creation is kind of like attracting people, which kind of can happen slowly. I want to kick the door off the hinges. I want to reach out to people and say, do you want to come to my, I'm, I'm running, a, I'm hosting a, a lunch. Do you want to come to the lunch? Uh, I'm going to be launching something. Do you want to join the wait list? So I'm creating stuff. I will probably put three or four bits of signature content around so that people can say, who is this guy and what's he up to and all that sort of stuff. So I might do a pitch video or I might do a explainer a video. Um, I'm launching a business, I'm gonna be doing that, you know, sort of thing. So
2: you've qualified your idea. Let's presume that everyone on the yacht loved it, everyone on the scorecards loved it and everyone's saying, yeah, I'd buy this.
0: What's the next step? Okay, so I've got concept and now I've got an audience building. The next thing is to um, fine tune the offer. So when we think about an offer, The schooling system taught us to offer our labor. That's what the offer is when you go through school. So they said, you are um, a piece of labor um, and your job is to become more skilled as labor and then sell your labor to someone who has an, an idea as to what they might do with your labor. That was the original plan of the schooling system. So it's called component labor. So when you're an entrepreneur, your goal is to not be component labor. Your goal is to construct an offer that doesn't involve your time involved too too much inside it. So think about this. If you're a fitness trainer and you sell hourly rates, 60 pounds per session, let's say, that is selling your time for money. Imagine you said, I do body transformation programs. It includes some fitness training, some supervised fasting, uh, it includes a signature library of books and podcasts that help you to shift your uh, mindset. It includes some supplements. It includes some apps that we get to put on the phone. Um, it we we have some boxing training, some yoga, right, just to spice it up over the next three or four months. And the whole package is three thousand pounds. So now you're out there selling a package, and maybe some of it is your time to deliver in the in the early days. But actually, you could you could package all those ingredients in. And a lot of it's not your time and you could, you know, you could kind of uh, have some of it your time and and a lot of it not your time. So you're creating an offer. Um, So what I like to do is create things like landing pages and brochures. And I love to pretend that if I was Apple launching this, what would the Apple brochure or landing page look like for this type of product? Um, If I was going to launch this in the other side of the world, let's say I'm going to launch it in Melbourne. Uh, it's like, okay, what would I do to create an offer that I have to get everyone to get the result that they want without me setting foot in that city? So it's like, okay, how, like someone wants weight loss. How do I remotely give them weight loss? Um, what ingredients do I need to put into the package? I will normally create three offers. I'll create a, what I would call a gold, silver, and a bronze. So a, a bronze offer will be maybe it's a couple of grand and then a gold offer might be 10 grand and i'm by the way i'm always thinking b2b or that sort of stuff i'm not a big fan of consumer products cuz you need high volumes of sales mm. it's very hard for a small business to do but i but i'm much more interested in like creating something that a small business could buy or a bigger business could buy or a wealthy individual could buy so i'm i'm interested in those types of things or at the least if i'm doing a consumer product i'm trying to create an offer for a channel partner so that someone else can sell into their consumer base. So I'm I'm creating landing pages and I'm creating um, like uh, PDF documents of my gold, silver and bronze offer. And then I'm putting them in front of the audience for feedback. So I'm saying, um, so we've taken on board all of your feedback. We've spoken to over 30 or 40 of you and here's what we've created. This is the offer we think is what everyone wants. And then I'm kind of saying, drop me an email, let me know what you think um uh, answer some questions about it here's here's what i'm you know do you do you want this in blue or purple do you want this to be extra large or small do you want this to have 10 things or three things so like i'm just kind of getting people to interact with the offer and i'm, I'm basically i'm one of the final questions is are you interested in buying this when it's ready um and that's the true question Like, right? yeah actually i actually am um fantastic would you be willing to put down a holding deposit of 250 pounds uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I would. Okay, now we've got a good offer. So people are starting to put down a, a reservation deposit. They're starting to um, respond favorably. All of that's really good. So then I'm going to move across to sales. So I've done concept audience
3: offer. Now I'm going to... Just quickly, before you do that, I've got a personal trainer called Tom um, that's looking to branch out into doing online sales and, and selling packages rather than just selling one-to-one training sessions. He's booked out his all of his time now and he wants to move to that next level. What would you suggest would be a good course of action for him today for for his offer? The
0: main course of action is to think about the outcome that the customer wants Mm. and what is the outcome worth to that person um, and essentially see yourself as the um, conductor of the orchestra who's who's in charge of getting that outcome. Mm. So Tom might say, I'm an expert in working with uh, entrepreneurs who have busy, busy schedules, and I'm an expert at getting them their fitness goals without interrupting their business. Mm. Oh, okay. And for 3,000 pounds per quarter, we do this, 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 and this. We do these calls, we do this. Um, we actually have a, a local fitness trainer who, get, who does 12 sessions to kick it off. You know, it's someone who's selected by me. So you're basically uh, putting those things together. The key thing is packaging. Uh, a Porsche 911 is a package even though it seems like one thing, but think about this. A Porsche 911 has 2,500 components um, from different suppliers, 2,500 suppliers, and it also has tangible and intangibles. So it has uh, warranty, it has finance package, it has um, all of that sort of stuff. Um, It has Porsche membership and club and all of those kind of things. So the Porsche 911 has tangible and intangible things that are packaged all together, but it seems like one thing but they bring it together they have designed it to look a certain way they find and curate the right suppliers to fulfill the vision but actually most of a Porsche is not Porsche most of it right so you know the the stereo system's not Porsche the brakes are not Porsche or the the shock absorbers the tires all sorts of things
3: that you think of as being part of a Porsche 911 are just other people's stuff packaged in I think the difficulty when it comes to um, online training is you lose that accountability that I love. When I'm going to Tom, I know I've got to be there at a certain time mm. and I'm going to work out. So it's finding a way for him to move that online and without losing you that. You can still
2: have those, you can have online check-ins. It's you not can have, the same you though. Can have, you, the same. I've
3: had an online coach. and Same. And, it, it, and it I just, just fucked does, it off yeah, so fast. I, I cancelled it because it wasn't working for
2: or me. Or I guess technically, if you're playing that sort of orchestra um, conductor role, you could have really good coaches on the ground in loads of different yeah. cities around the uk and you know if someone signs up in birmingham well you've got your um nutritionist and your coach on the ground in birmingham that you can connect them with they also have the online portal they also have all these resources so you're guess, kind of i guess you need to
1: convince those people to work with you though and not do it on their own and also i don't know who i'm going to when i'm in this city so then well, i've got well, no he's, he's and i'm a worm so I, it's like how do i get there in the
0: first place? <laughs> yeah maybe don't have a car (laughs) (laughs) the first thing you should know about every industry is everyone in the industry hates making sales they hate generating clients they just want to do the work um the value of every industry well the value of the vast majority of industries is in winning clients and getting the work done is easy most most personal trainers if you were to feed them the clients they would just take a, a very modest hourly rate the hard part is winning you in the first place and they hate it. They just want to be in the gym doing training sessions. So the money will always move to the person who knows how to win the market. Um, so you know, if I was entering that market, I would create a national licensing program. I would create the massive ability to funnel the audience and get the audience excited about this. And then I'd just have my delivery partners wherever they they were needed um, and I'd make quite a margin. Maybe, maybe my trainers were being paid £35 per session and those sessions are booked out at fifty-five pounds a session. I'm making twenty pounds a session across hundreds of trainers, um, because I know fundamentally, fitness trainers fucking hate making sales, right? Most of them. They just want to be in the gym counting reps. That's not where the value is. The value is in, um, the value is in winning the winning the business. That makes
3: sense. So anyway, let's move on to the next step.
0: Uh, So sales, so essentially sales is um, LAPS. We talked about a bit about this last time. LAPS is leads, appointments, presentations, and sales. So every single week, you have to have a way of generating some leads, booking those leads into appointments or or a, a greater commitment of attention. And then presentation, you actually present someone with a value proposition and sales follow through, making sure you handle objections and make the sale. And what you do is you actually get into a rhythm where you pick what is your target revenue for the year break it down over 45 weeks and then essentially say how many leads, appointments, presentations and sales do we need each week in order to hit that revenue target. So if I want to do a million a year, I need something like 25,000 a week. If I've got a five grand sale, I need a sale a day. So I need you know, um, five sales a week. I need 25 presentations, let's say. I need uh, 200 leads. So it's like, okay, how much do I need to spend? What do I have to do to get the 200 leads, to get these appointments, to get these presentations, to get these sales? And all I'm doing for the, once I've figured out the first concept audience and offer, now I just go into a year of just dedicated leads, appointments, presentation sales. That's, that's religion for the next 12 months. We are just going to go and figure out each, how do we optimize for each lead appointment presentation sale? Um, and what we're looking at, what is our cost? acquire a customer and what is the lifetime value of a customer and then how do we spend as much money as we can that is an allowable cost per lead that gives us an allowable cost per acquisition that allows us to keep selling um so you know and you can do some of that online you can do some of that over zoom you can do calls you can do face to face depending on what your allowable cost per lead is and your allowable cost per sale and your lifetime value of a customer is you can then build uh, an entire pipeline of um, of sales activity off the back of that. That should get you f- your first six figures of revenue. You should be able to get to 100 to 300 grand worth of revenue just by doing concept audience offer and sales.
1: Yeah. And then what I was going to say is, so yeah, them strategies get you to a pretty sizable business, but then how do you take that from the six figures to the seven figure mark? Whew.
0: I like it. So let's say we've validated, we've got 100 grand worth of revenue. Now we need to build a team. So teams build the same way as military teams build. So uh, two-person teams. So I'm a big believer in co-founders, or at least having an assistant. So two-person team turns into a four-person, turns to eight-person, turns to thirty people. So two in in the military they call this a scout team, a fire team, a section, and a platoon. So when I build businesses, we go two, four, eight, thirty, um, and we build out the build out the team. And essentially, what we're going to be doing is the most important thing at the beginning is to establish the founder's brand as a key person of influence. That is super, super pers- uh, super, super important. Look at all the people that you guys have on the show. They've written books, they lead communities. They've got to, if you Google them, their name comes up. Um, people in their industry have heard of their name before. So you've got to establish yourself as a key person of influence, publish a lot of stuff. You gotta pitch yourself well, you gotta give talks, you gotta be on podcasts. Uh, you gotta re- launch a book if you can launch a book. Um, uh, you've got to host dinner parties. You've got to get in with the existing key people of influence and make sure that they want to have you around as well. So your, your job as the founder is to get in as the key person of influence who's leading this business and who's known, liked, and trusted. You've got to stay away from the delivery side of the business. Um, the delivery is always solvable if the demand is there. The key person of influence is responsible for demand generation at scale. So they're gonna be out there talking about things, getting things going. Once the marketplace is accepting this and they're excited about it, you will be able to recruit the team. You will be able to uh, raise capital if you need it. All of the other problems are downstream from that first problem of having enough people who wanna buy it. So your your best strategy for that is, is being that key person of influence. Um, and also if you run ads, you wanna have a face on the ad because people don't buy from faceless brands. Um, It takes a hundred years to build a trusted brand pretty much where you can build a a key person of influence
3: brand very rapidly. Is it dangerous linking um, your brand, your business to a person that's not going to live forever? Um, For example, my dad is a big uh, figure for our business, whereas we're 50, 50 in the business. I don't have the kind of brand that he does because we spend all of our time building my dad's. So when my dad steps away or he's no longer with us long time yet, um, (laughs) and maybe the business will suffer quite a lot. So the same with um, maybe Apple, I know they've got Tim Cook now, but Steve Jobs obviously left his mark on the business and it took a certain person to come in and take over. And maybe they might not have found that. Maybe the business would I mean, have, I, have I guess this
2: situation is even more extreme than that though, right? Mm. Because Mark is the brand, whereas Tim Cook was just the known figure behind. Mm. Yeah, at least they had a product,
1: you know. Right. there was yeah, a, Steve there was Jobs, a product. yeah.
0: So there's three types of brands. Key person of influence gets the best cut through. Company brands and product brands end up being, you know, long-term. What you want to do is use your personal brand to build a company and a product brand. Um, And then you, like, if we want to talk about what makes a business exit and valuable or or longevity, you're going to have a core team of people who make that business run. Normally it has to be at least 30 people. You're going to have a proprietary set of assets. So it could be intellectual property, media, content, software, code, All of that sort of stuff is your proprietary asset base that your business owns. Um, And then you're going to have recurring and predictable revenues. So recurring revenues are really what makes it valuable. So if we take Mark's brand and we say he's getting huge cut through, how do we turn that into recurring revenues? How do we turn that into proprietary assets? How do we build a team around that? Now, what happens is that initially the starter motor is the personal brand. Eventually, you can actually introduce other personal brands. You can um you know a great example is nike so nike was started by two guys phil knight and bill Bowerman. Mm. bill Bowerman wrote a book called jogging which is the biggest book that was ever written about going for a run going for jogs. a uh, million people bought the book he was the key person of influence for jogging and they sold jogging shoes for 12 years that's what they did track and field jogging shoes um and then what they ended up doing is bill Bowerman passed away And they ended up finding all sorts of athletes who could be the face of those um, product lines. And they said, we can enter tennis and basketball. So then they adopted a new strategy and now Nike can just, you know, do that over and over and over again. They know how it's done uh, and they can build up a personal brand uh, for that particular category. So it's super simple. So the idea is that you want to use your personal brand to get things going. You need to build a core team. Uh, A core team is either gonna be eight or 30. Um, So a small business is eight people on the core team and a 30-person team is a leadership team with teams of teams Mm -hmm. underneath them. You establish your team, you establish your proprietary assets, you establish your recurring revenues and then your business. Once you've got those three things, your business can interchange the personal brand. Apple interchanged the personal brand. It was interesting, by the way. Side note, Apple used to be seen as visionary and rebellious when it was Steve Jobs and now it's seen as predictable and safe, Mm. which is Tim Cook. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's even a huge business, the biggest business in the world still adopts uh, the personal brand as the extension, like the business becomes an extension of the personal brand. Uh, Apple today looks like a Tim Cook business. It doesn't look like a Steve Jobs business
1: anymore. Where does that go? Because it's interesting that you say that because we just had Grant Cardone on the pod and he was saying that a lot of people run into these problems where when they become a millionaire, they stop doing, you know, stop taking risks and they start becoming conservative. So would you say that that's what Apple are doing? Like they are becoming conservative. They're doing what they know works. They're not being what they used to be or changing things up. And then where will that go? Do you think that they will just keep selling or will it become like BlackBerry? Well,
0: what's happened is that Apple has Apple has become an extension of Tim Cook, and Tim Cook is a very, very good operator. Um, what they've done is they've adopted the best strategies in the world, which is to become a luxury brand. So they are a, um, you know, they're considered to be a premium luxury brand. Um, they run a very, very tight operation. Tim Cook's background was the COO; he was the operator of the business. Um, he is a very, very safe pair of hands. He's a really predictable. Um, guy who's reliable and predictable. He's created something that is reliable and predictable, um, and they've moved. They've moved into a new category of business. It was the right move for they've graduated. The, I guess yeah. They've 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 leveled up. So if we take Louis Vuitton, Louis Vuitton was originally a disruptive uh, suitcase maker, a young guy who creates these you know different types of suitcases and these boxes and sells all of them and literally sells them on the streets and outside train stations, and they've elevated up to becoming Louis Vuitton today. So um, businesses go through these evolutions um, and it's often, it's the leader who becomes the face of the brand and then the business personifies them. So the funny thing is, is that Apple is now insanely more profitable than it ever was under Steve Jobs. I think the quarterly profit is more than the annual revenue under Steve Jobs. Um, So it's, it's now that big. And that's because they adopted reliability, luxury branding. Um, So they made made a shift. They made an evolution. Had Tim Cook tried to be Steve Jobs and said, I'm going to try and be a rebel and a misfit and I'm going to try and be a disruptor, he would have been not being true to who he is. Um, and he wouldn't have been able to sustain it.
2: But equally, I guess if, if uh, Tim Cook started Apple, it might not have cut through the noise if you didn't have that rebellious arc. So it's kind of like there's different strategies
0: for different points in time. Yeah, Tim Tim Cook is probably not someone to start a business. Yeah. Um, he's probably someone to take over a billion dollar business and grow it to 100 billion. Um, it's funny. I, I personally think that Elon Musk would be super... Uh, he would, he would be. It would be super beneficial for him to have a Tim Cook running Tesla now.
3: Um, I was actually going to ask you that question. What do you think Tesla would look like if Elon Musk wasn't running it?
0: Yeah, I think it's it's starting to get to that point because Elon's always off to dis- being distracted by something else. But um, you know, he can't help himself. He cannot help but being a disruptor who's interested in the new thing. Um, and the the thing that they have to do is kind of contain that energy, you know, and sort of distance themselves a little bit um so that they can adopt that predictable reliable um luxury uh without you know the rebel the misfit the, mm. the you know the the free speech guy right because tesla's like hey that's not our dna of our brand we're trying to be over here doing this thing and we're a more evolved business now so they're having that same challenge yeah there's like a branding issue there almost isn't there
3: mm. So once you become that key person of influence, how do you move on from there?
0: So here's what a million, a a one million a year business looks like, a key person of influence who's responsible for demand generation and a general manager who reports to that key person of influence. And the general manager is not like some Tim Cook role. The general manager is someone who could run a coffee shop or a pub or a McDonald's or an executive assistant, but it's someone who just handles general day-to-day management and they maintain a team of about six or seven people you've got someone in marketing someone in sales or a couple of people people in sales you've got someone financial control and admin uh, you've got someone who's in uh, client delivery customer success um, and um, you know media and IT so you've got this nice little team of about eight to twelve people and you end up doing about a 100 grand a month and above. Um, and that is that is essentially the first place where business becomes great. So when you think of someone who's got a really, really good life, it's normally they've got a team of less than 12, pe- or, 12 or less people. So it's a nice core cool little team. They've got those nice roles. They've got a key person of influence who's getting an attention. That attention gets turned into laps, leads appointments, presentations, and sales. The laps gets turned into happy customers. And now they've got this great little uh, engine. Um, it's making hundreds of thousands of profit. Um, It's, you know, it's got millions of revenue, hundreds of thousands of profit, and it's a great little stable unit. At that point, it's a very stable business. Um, If you try and go beyond that point, you might rock the stability, but at about 8 to 12 people, you're a very stable business that just prints money.
3: That sounds like where we are exactly now. Like the other day, I got really annoyed with everyone messaging me because I was doing the day-to-day running, and I said to Kai, I need you to be the general manager. And he made a joke in the Discord, or not the Discord, the Slack. And he said, yeah, I'm captain now, guys, because um, that's what we, we call ourselves in there. But yeah, we got to that stage where now it's eight to 12 people, but Perfect. we want to be moving on to the, the, next, uh, the next stages from there. So the
0: next stage is difficult because... It doesn't really work between 13 and 30 people. Between 13 and 30 people, you're too big to be small and too small to be big. Um, So you're not yet a big business and you need all the big business stuff, but you can't afford all the big business stuff. So what it looks like on the other side is a five person executive team with the non-executive director and an advisor. So you've got like six or seven people buzzing around the top section of the business. Then you've got territories, products, markets and functions teams, right? So you might have uh, some territory teams or you have some product teams or you have some market function teams. So a functional team might be sales or marketing or admin or customer success. Those are functions. Territory team might be Germany, France, UK. Um, Product team might be iPod, iPad, iMac, uh, those sorts of things. So you end up with a leadership team and then teams of teams. And those teams of teams will be like uh, four to 12 people each. And you'll have several of them you typically have about 30 people in total. um, And um, at that level, you're now probably doing north of say 6 million, so half a million a month type thing, um, and then up. And that team will actually scale up right up into the tens of millions. Um, And that is where you end up with a very valuable exit because if you've got a good leadership team and you've got teams of teams, you've got recurring revenue, you've got proprietary assets, all of that stuff adds up to an exitable business where you can get a proper exit
3: you hire those people straight away? Because I, I noticed you said you went from, was it 16 to 32 or, or something like that, or 12 to 32? 12 10. to 30, Is yeah. it like that or do you gradually hire those people as you go?
0: The fastest I've ever done it was four days where um, we basically held a conference and we said we need to go from 12 to 30 people. Who wants to join the team? We had about 60, 70 people in the room. We put up the future state org chart um, and we basically did just onboarded a, 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 a new team and um, and we said, great, we're going to start with culture and solving problems together and all of that sort of stuff. It's very, very hard to grow. You have to transform. So growing is like, oh, we're 12 people. Now we're 13. Now we're 14. Now we're 15. Now we're 16. Now we're 17. Oh, now, we, now we've failed. We're back to 12. Oh, now we're 17. Oh, no, we can't manage that. We're back to 12. Transforming is saying that's something that works. Now we're going to have a future state organizational chart with a leadership team and teams of teams, this is what everyone's going to do. We need five uh, CS people. We need six developers. We need a front-end developer, a back-end developer. We need a graphic designer. We need these sales salespeople. Um, we need these presenters. We need these financial controllers and admin people. So it's like boom, boom, boom. We've figured out exactly how much that is. We've also done a financial forecast and model that we're going to lose 400 grand before we make 400 grand. So it's like okay, we need capital, so we need to tip four hundred grand in, so that we can get through the J curve and then out the other side. So this is where you become a grown-up business. A grown-up business plays a very different game. Not worried about losing money if you're going to make money in the long run. Um, Not worried about like growing slowly. It's like no, no, we need that size team. Um, So think about how a grown-up business would approach opening a hotel. They would buy a site, right? So they'd have the hotel. They would work out that they need 87 people on site at any given time, and there's three shifts. So it's like, okay, we need these 200 employees. And they would just hire the 200 employees and open the hotel. Um, so that's a grown-up business approach. And they would from, from day one, they would have everything that they need to open a hotel and run a hotel. So once you decide that you're going to go past 12
3: people, you have to start becoming more of a grown-up in the way that you run the business. Although you did your financial projections when you went from those um, that smaller team to thirty people in four days, were you scared about taking on those extra overheads? Because even though you know you're going to lose money to that point, you don't know those projections are a hundred percent correct, right? Yeah, yeah, but you also
0: know that, like a professional fighter, you know that if something gets thrown at you, you've seen it before. You'll duck, you'll weave, you'll figure it out. Um, if you know, if you're if you're getting so where I'm I in business is that like none of those things surprise me anymore I I've, I've got margins for error and I I know that it's just a guide and I know that you know this is this is the model but obviously we're not going to be on track for the model we'll do our best to be as close as possible but we're in the we're in the zone of sensible um you know we 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 you know we've tested our assumptions and we've got good market feedback and we know you know enough about what we're doing and also, we've, we're surrounding ourselves with smart people who can just solve most problems um, at that point. So do you
1: think people should be building businesses to exit? Like you mentioned, your Magic AI or something earlier. Yeah, Book Magic, uh, Book Magic. Um, so, are you building that with an exit in mind? Yeah, absolutely. Mm, yeah. And
0: Score App, Score App's on track for a hundred million exit.
1: And would you recommend that other people do that, or when they're, you know, should they just be trying to make themselves some money to start with, and then they can worry about that in, you know, five? It's a bit of an time.
0: advanced move, and there comes a point where you've been around enough people who've had an exit, and you've got a, you've also got a CFO on the team who's done a lot of transactions, M and A transactions, that it just doesn't feel like a weird thing to be doing anymore. It feels like a far more normal thing. It feels like the next step in in the journey. Um, it's kind of like you know if you're playing sport and you start spending a lot of time around professional athletes, and it's like okay now I know what being a professional athlete looks like, I'm going to level up and play that professional athlete game. Um, and you surround yourself with all the people who are quite comfortable and used to that level of intensity and they, and that's the game they want to play anyway. So I would say for most people, um, especially anyone who's like done a but what if uh, type thing, um, most people, your biggest business you want to get to is about 12. Um, so four, between 4 and 12 people, with healthy six- and seven-figure revenues and six-figure profits. That's the, that's the outcome that you want to get to first. That is where you cut your teeth and get used to business, and that's where you're forced to solve all sorts of problems on a small scale. And then there comes a time where you start thinking, what if we were to go beyond? Now, the trick is don't go 13, 14, 15, 16 people. Don't go incremental. At that point, you need to draw a line at 12. And say, I need to start spending time with people who've got 30, 40, 50, 150 people on the team. I need to start spending time with a CFO who's run a business at a bigger level, and a COO who's run a bigger business. I need to spend time. Essentially, I'm gonna have to be in a position to attract an experienced operator, an experienced finance person, experienced marketer. So I'm gonna have to have an experienced leadership team who are better than my current team. I'm gonna have to bring in some grown-ups and manage and lead those grown-ups. So you, you're going to have to, as I say, it's not growth, it's transformation at that point. You're not going to grow into that business. You're going to transform into that business. So you've got to be ready for that transformation.
1: Do you ever wish that you didn't transform and you just had that 12 person team making half an M a year and you're just chilling? Mm,
0: no.
2: He's chilling now, look I'm at him. Chilling. I'm nah, Of
1: course, but I'm sure that there's a lot no of things to go on that we don't know uh, about. I,
0: no, I think... Um,
2: You'd get bored, right, presumably?
0: Yeah, you get to a point, if you love business, if you're a proper business geek, you get to the point where it's like, oh, like I want to I build a business that's, that's that next level up and, and it's enjoyable to do that. You also start attracting phenomenal people to play the game with. And it's like, if I don't come up with something cool that we're all going to work together on, they're going to go work on something else. Um, so you kind of want to play with other professionals at that level. Um, I enjoy I enjoy what I do. There are, look, yeah, of course, there are times where a lifestyle business would be great. Um, there are some times where I get paid to speak and I go, gee, I could, I could just do this. I could just like do four of these a, a month and earn pretty damn good money and literally have no overheads and all that. I'd get bored so fast with that.
3: I'd, if I had all that time on my hands, I'd be coming up with something. So if we use um, our business as a bit of a case study, how would we go from 12 people now to 30 people? What steps do we need to take to turn this business into a business that could be doing 10 million a year versus like 1.2 at the moment around that?
0: So what you do is start with financial modeling. Financial modeling is where you build a financial model as to what it looks like. Um, So what you would do is probably start with the idea of uh, what does 10 million of revenue and 3 million of profit look like? And you'd essentially have to kind of do a retreat with the team. And say okay forgetting what we are today what does this business look like as a much bigger business and you might say well we do 10 times as much media or we actually launch a product or we acquire a company we buy this business but if this business was owned by us it would do way better like let's say there's a business out there that's currently making a million but strapped onto your media engine it would make 10 million so you start coming up with ways of thinking about how would how would we look? What kind of products or services would we we'd be selling? And then you kind of build your org chart. So the financial model, you then kind of ask the question, well, like what would the um, org chart look like? Like we, we're gonna need a leadership team, but then we're gonna need these types of people and these types of people. And we probably would need four of them and six of them. And so you're kind of building out that, that model, uh, that organizational chart and that financial model. Um, and then you might ask the question: um, How would we get from where we are today to to there? So you work on a financial model for growing into that, like turning into that. So you might say we're going to do it in three stages. We're going to do stage one, stage two, stage three. Um, and you know we, this is this is this. And then you might say, what te- what assumptions do we need to test to see if our model is actually accurate? So in your in your um, Model, you might say, We're going to sell um, access to our studios, right? So we're going to have a global group of studios, strike a big studios. We've actually thought about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And you say, Okay, we're going to do, we're going to launch 20 locations, strike a big studios, Mm -hmm. and people are going to rent space at the podcast studios, and we're going to be a global strike a big studio Mm -hmm. business. So then you might say, um, We're considering launching studios fill in the waiting list if you'd be wanting to take out a membership or use the studios and you ask them survey questions and you kind of get see if you can get 500, 1,000 people to fill in the thing. And then that's going to either confirm, actually, we do have people from 20 cities who have said that they're interested in joining this. We've got plenty of people who have said that they're willing to pay the price that we need them to pay. So it starts giving you validation. So once you get validation, you then... Assemble your leadership team, you've got a business plan, you've got a financial forecast, you've got a future state org chart. So you're putting all these grown-up things together and uh, you might work with investors uh, to do that. Um, Yeah, and and you basically then execute the plan.
3: I think with the sales thing that lots of people struggle with dealing with those objections. So maybe something that would be useful is you – that maybe explain some of the most common ab- objections you have and, and how you've dealt with them and how other people can. Sales objections? Yeah, yeah. So you've got the, the good offer. You've got all of that stuff sorted.
0: Mm. So sales is hard because in order for someone to buy from you, they have to logically want to buy the thing, emotionally want to buy the thing, and they have to feel a sense of urgency. And those are three balls that you've got to learn how to juggle. And that's why sales is hard. Logic, emotion, urgency. Logic, emotion, urgency. Most people can make a logical argument for something. People can make an emotional argument for something, but the logic goes out the window. People can say that it's urgent that you buy this thing now, but if it's not underpinned with logic and emotion, people don't go with urgency. So the very good salespeople are the ones who learn the skill of logic, emotion, urgency in a single conversation. They learn how to do it in a a conversation. Sales is a little bit like, Uh, Shakespeare, performing Shakespeare on a stage. It sort of sounds like English, but you actually have to learn the lines and you have to kind of, there's nuances to it. And you've got to become a trained actor to be able to do it convincingly. And it's the same. People think, oh, I like people, I'll get into sales. Or I'm confident, I'll get into sales. Well, that's a good starting point, but it's no different to saying, I'm confident, I'll deliver Shakespeare. Well, okay, if you're committed to learning the lines, if you're committed to understanding the underlying stories, if you're committed to the craft, yeah, you can do that. But it, it's a craft. Sales is a craft. You've got to do role play. You've got to make a list of all your objections. What are the big objections? And you've got to brainstorm and role play. So for example, if we're going to launch Striker Big Studios, someone might have a price objection. Someone might have a timing objection. Someone might have- um, An uh, objection to us having Andrew Tate on the podcast. And yeah, they don't they, want to associate. Yeah, <laughs> a, a brand objection. Let's right? role
2: play now. So I'm a worm.
0: And as a result, it's very difficult for me to get to the studio. Exactly. Is that, Apart from that, is there anything else that would hold you back? No, I'm sold. Completely. Fantastic. So it's just the fact that you're a worm. You haven't got legs.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: But I, I'm, I'm working on that, actually. So, out of curiosity, if we could come up with a solution that could get you to the studio, is there any other reason why you wouldn't go ahead? I guess I'm a, a bit afraid of committing to paying a price every single week for the studio. So it's the commitment yeah. and the fact that you've got to commit to a contract. Is there anything else? Um, that's pretty much it great so what I've done is I've surfaced the full objection there's the original objection is I'm just a worm but actually sitting beneath the surface is the real objection which is committing to a contract so first thing I would say is that committing to a contract feels like a big commitment and it feels like you don't want to do something where you can't back out and all of those sorts of things I totally get that I have felt that way about contracts as well and I'm reluctant to do that Um, Have you ever signed up to a contract where you felt totally confident that it was a good thing for you to do? Is that that something you've ever done in your business before? No, I've never been totally confident. I'd say I've been 90% there, but there's always a a bit of doubt for sure. Great. So what would be the two or three things that would, for you, give you confidence to be able to sign up to a contract? Um, I guess just to know that I'm going to make use of it because
2: I might not want to record every single week or, or, you know, my... Um, my need for the studio might no longer be there, but I'm still going to have to be paying you every single month for the
0: next 12 months. Can I have your permission to push back on that idea with something that is a bit cheeky and a bit playful? Yeah, I'm in a cheeky mood. So go on. (laughs) So one of the things that happens is when we commit to something, we typically prioritize it and get it done. You told me earlier that you want to have a really successful podcast. Yeah. And part of having a successful podcast is just committing to it and getting it done every week right? So I want you to think of the commitment to the studio as not a commitment to the studio, but a commitment to your own consistency and a commitment to getting your podcast out there every single week. And the actual benefit of being committed to a contract is it's you saying, yes, I will build this audience. I'm going to do it. I'll push through the difficult times. Um, I personally know that when I commit to like a a fitness trainer and I've prepaid all my sessions, I actually turn up to the gym and I do the workout. Um, When you commit to the podcast episodes i know you and i know from what i know of you i know that what you want to do is get 12 really good episodes out in the next 12 weeks and that means you've got to get the guests and you've got to do all these sorts of things so the commitment's not to us the commitment is to you doing that thing that you want to get done would you agree i would agree yeah yeah so how does the commitment feel now making the commitment to your audience and to your podcast
2: yeah. And and it almost feels like there's no point doing it if I'm not going to commit anyway.
0: Great. So I've got some good news and bad news. The good okay. news is we would love to have your podcast as part of the studios. The bad news is that at the moment we're talking to about 40 different podcasters and we have limited availability in the studios, right? So you can either make that commitment to the audience and make that commitment to your podcast, or it's totally fine to leave it until next year and launch the podcast next year. But what we need at this point is we need to secure, in order for us to open up the studios and get going, we need some people who are totally committed to their audiences to come on board and say, yes, I want to be one of the people who gets access to the studio consistently. Are you in that camp? Well, yeah, now I feel um, almost stupid for not signing up because there's so many people
2: wanting to sign up. It makes me feel like them, it must be a great product and a great service. And it also makes me feel guilty that I'm not committed to what I'm saying I am. So to be honest with you, I'm,
1: I'd am i love to give you my money right now. I'll pay a year, a year up front. One question for me, just because selfishly, because I just want to know, is that how does it trigger people in the sense of if you really have this many people that are interested and you are truly in that position of abundance, why would you spend so much time dealing with his objections when you don't really need him? There is an element of that could potentially make me feel like, do, is this really true? Do you really have these people? Because why are you pushing so hard? The
0: main thing is that signaled interest, well, I wasn't pushing too no, hard. No, I didn't, I didn't pushing is, push. No, push
1: is not the right word. Why yeah. are you, you know, trying to get the sale? So, not pushing?
0: So signaled interest is not Committed interest. So people will signal that they're interested in in something if they're 15 or 20% interested, but getting someone from 20% interested to 100% interested uh, requires handling objections. Um, So the thing about sales in that situation is that I'm saying that I'm not quite sure who are going to be our first customers, but I know we've got enough people that we'll get there. I wouldn't want, based on what you're saying, I wouldn't want you to miss out on that. It's totally fine if you do. We will find someone else. But everything that you've told me says that you are ready to commit to launching a podcast. So therefore, it would be a sensible thing for us to take you on as a client. It would be a sensible thing for you to commit to doing your podcast.
2: It almost felt like you weren't selling to me. You were helping me make a decision.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, and that, by the way, what we just did is role play. And what I was doing was balancing logic, emotion and urgency. And I was trying to rapidly think through what does it look like on his shoes. Does he want to make a commitment to me? No. But does he want to make a commitment to his audience? Yes. Mm-hmm. Does he want to make a commitment to this strategy? Yes. So it's like let's reposition the commitment to the studio as a re- com- as a commitment to the strategy. Um, yeah, you weren't selling the studio; you were selling my success. Exactly. So this is so essentially this is Shakespearean learning the lines, learning how to do it. Um and uh, essentially going through role plays so you get good at it.
1: no, I think what you're saying makes complete sense. I think what I was just wondering is do you have have you ever had a situation where in that moment, they just think I know he hasn 't really got them people otherwise he wouldn 't be wasting the time with me, so i 'm going to leave it for now and i 'll come back later because I know he 'll still have me does does that happen well
0: if people if people say that so you, like so that would be your objection, which is i don 't want to make a decision right now potentially yeah. Yeah, so that's totally fine. So what we would do, so so here's what we do. We're going to go through first pass through all of the different people who've expressed interest and we're looking for the people that we think are going to be the most successful podcasters who are going to have a big audience and that are most committed to their audience and committed to the strategy of podcasting. If you're not in that camp at the moment, that's totally fine. Um, we know that we've got enough significant interest um, of people who do want that. What I'd love to do is move you to our wait list or, or keep you on the waitlist. keep um, sending you some updates, show you some of the people who are succeeding. When you're ready to commit to your audience and to the strategy, then what we'll do is we'll just have another meeting. We'll find out whether you're in a position to commit properly. And if we've got availability, we'll happily take you on. Yeah, the, and now the, now the, I
3: feel like I'm not serious enough. You know what I mean? The key <laughs> is though, you're not bluffing. You, you do have that interest. And it's the same when you're selling brand deals, right? You don't have to bluff because yeah. we've got this interest mm-hmm. and you feel like, well, we don't mm-hmm. need them, but we want them. So if they want to commit to a 12-month yeah, deal, them we have them. and
1: I felt it in real time as well, because when I first started doing the brand deals, it was like, you know, the first month where I've like properly moved on to it. It's like, well, I'm starting from scratch now. Mm. You know, I've, I've got nothing. So I'd hop on a call and, you know, try and fake the fact that I've got this abundance. But they just know. <laughs> They just know. But then as soon as you actually have it, and it's like, if we close this deal, it's going to be more work for us than than what we generate sort of thing. So I'm not really that bothered. They just want it more.
0: The purpose of marketing is to give the sales team with or without you energy. With or without you energy is where you know you're going to make the sales with or without that person. It's fine. I've got enough leads in my pipeline. My pipeline's fully stacked. That's good marketing. Good marketing makes the salespeople go, you know what, I can take it away from you. Confidently, my nonverbal communication says that we've got plenty of leads um you know we've got plenty of leads you filled in the waiting list and you know that lots of people filled in the waiting list so i've got like 800 people on the waiting list i've got 40 spots available so i've got to you know for for the good of our business i've got to choose people who are committed to their strategy not people who are wishy-washy and i'm going to have to chop and change every every couple of months because they just didn't feel like it this week so with all due respect i need to pick someone who's a bit more
1: committed Right. Now what will happen is you'll go, whoa, hold Whoa, up. hold no, up. Hold up. Yeah, yeah. I am committed to my audience. Yeah. I, I do want to do this and now I'll feel you. Yes. Yeah. That's been a super valuable podcast.
3: Serious goat. Where can people find you?
1: <laughs> so I've
0: written a bunch of books. Uh scorecard marketing is the latest one. Uh scoreapp.com is um the place to get the scorecards and um the waiting list software and the templates. Um dent.global is where we do our entrepreneur accelerators. Um, and also there's a page there that like has all the other group of companies like the publishing and that sort of stuff if you want to connect with me all the social media channels linkedin and, and instagram and and twitter and all those sorts of
3: places drop a like if you enjoyed, guys and we will see you next wednesday <laughs> <laughs> I think that could be our most valuable podcast oh, yeah it definitely sure. will be the most valuable